Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Owens Corning of New England, helping homeowners create living space using the Owens Corning basement finishing system for over 20 years. More information at ocboston.com. And Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Massachusetts' economy is moving forward with Phase 2 of Governor Baker's reopening plan underway today. Though the coronavirus is still present, Bay Staters can make a triumphant return to day camps, and some restaurants are throwing open their patios for the first time in months. Still not a complete opening. Indoor dining will come later. Stores won't operate at full capacity. And if you're thinking of sending your kid to camp, make sure they know it comes with restrictions. In a couple of minutes, we'll open the lines and ask how you're feeling about the beginning of phase two. The moment many business owners have been waiting for has finally arrived, and most states the economy is moving toward a semblance of normalcy, allowing significant parts of their economies to open up. Business leaders say it's not just good for the economy, but it'll give the government much-needed tax revenue to spend. We'll ask economist John Gruber just what reopening will mean for our economy. That and more is ahead on Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan, you are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm uh, well enough. So after three <laughs> months of inertia, the state is, I don't know how to describe this, beginning to hum again, I guess you could say, as retail stores, outdoor dining, day camps, and daycare reopen as part of the governor's COVID-19 Phase 2 plan. As perfect as the weather is for dining al fresco, do you have reservations, so to speak, about jumping back in? After three months of living off your rations and shopping online, does it feel reckless or even unnatural to loosen restrictions? Or could this not come soon enough for you? 877-301-8970. Parents, is this the day you've been waiting for? Workers, are you eager to get back on the job? Are you nervous about it? Are you worried about putting your health at risk? If you're told you have to come back to work, 877-301-8970. You know, we were both looking. Was it at Boston.com or BostonGlobe.com or something? Yeah. They listed yep. the number of uh, restaurants, the names of restaurants that today will be uh, opening, you know, outdoor patio kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. how many there are in Cambridge on this list? I'm sure it's not intended to be comprehensive. How many are in Cambridge, all of Cambridge? I didn't see any, I don't think. Three. Three. Three? Muna right down the street from me, which is great, which always has a couple of tables. Three restaurants. And maybe that's because of uh, understandable caution. Maybe it's because they only got two days' notice and they couldn't buy enough food and get the workers back quickly. But it's clear that there is some caution being exhibited by both business owners and customers and a whole host of these things, even though I know that, as I said, a lot of people have been chomping. Is it chomping at the bit? Do you chomp at the chomping bit? Chomping at the bit. Chomping, chomping at, at the, the bit, bit yes. for uh, some things to reopen. So, again, today is day one of phase two announced Saturday by Governor Baker. How are you reacting to it at 877-301-8970? But you got your hair cut last week. You didn't even wait for phase two. It was legal. I did not so wait you for phase it, right? two. Yes, it was legal. So I went. Uh, so I went and did it. I, w- I will not rush out to the uh, nail salons, which are later anyway in phase two well, to you begin can't with. Rush but out. They're not you know, open. 
you can't. They're not. They're not open yet. Tattoo paws not open yet either. So I, I'll have to wait for my uh, my tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What's your <laughs> point there? But but I I am going to seek out newly open patios. To Me too. Eat at. I'm, I'm too. I'm really anxious I'm to get out there and eat and eat out again. And I think you know it's going to be different. But you're going to be spread apart. I noticed across from the station, um, the um, a restaurant right Stockyard. across the station. What's it? Stockyard. Thank yeah. you very much. They seem to have some outdoor tables set up in the parking lot. So I think a lot of us are going to be eating in parking lots if we want to go out and eat. But I, I really want to go out and eat. You're a big dining out kind of guy, Jim. I am Jim. a dining out kind of guy. I'm doing it. I, you know, I had some has- reservations. I thought about it a lot. And the more I read, the one constant theme in all these stories about reopening around the country on here is being outside is about a million times safer than being inside with other people. I mean, if you're inside just with your family or people with whom you have close relationships, that's one thing. But if you're going to start mixing, uh, and I use the term loosely, outside is the uh, is the uh, place to, to do it. You know, I just want to say one thing. It, it, then we'll get to your calls about this reopening, about day one of phase two here. Uh, I don't know if you were listening to uh, the NPR News at the top of the hour. But did you hear? I think I was. Uh, Joe Biden is spending his day in part meeting with the Floyd family in Houston. Yep. And Donald Trump is spending his day meeting with law enforcement uh, officials. It's sort of and, and we you know we were not here on Friday. I just want to get this out of my system before we get back to reopening. Uh, we had already finished our Friday show when uh, Donald Trump was crowing about the shocking. Uh, uh, stock market uh, unemployment numbers, which we'll discuss with our economist uh, in waiting, uh, John Gruber. We'll talk about economic activity, about the reopening in general with him at the bottom of the hour. But uh, Donald Trump said this immortal line, hopefully after he's celebrating the uh, unemployment numbers, that means they're only, was it, unemployment is only 13.3% as opposed to mm-hmm. 20%, which people thought it was going to be. Hopefully, George, I mean, George Floyd is looking down and saying this is a great thing that's happening for our country. It's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. You know, I I know you're sick of me saying this one surpasses all the others. It's a great day for George Floyd because the unemployment number is not as outrageous as uh, economists were projecting. I mean, well... Again, Jim, I think the president of the United States long since take, ta- has taken leave of planet Earth. And I don't know where he is, but he's, you know, I just don't expect anything from him anymore. And I think that th- the significance of that is you see so many military leaders uh, coming out to uh, trash him. I-, I wish more Republicans had some courage, but they apparently don't. And I'm glad Mitt Romney was marching uh, yeah, was in a great. Black Lives Matter protest. Yeah. And I'm glad he's, he's – but, you know, he's the only one that didn't vote against impeachment. So I, I don't Voted know – for and, removal, not – I mean, th- there, are a lot of, there are a lot of polls that show that the president has lost support. What I don't understand is <clears throat> at this point – I don't understand how you could support him at this point. But that's just me. No, it's not just you. Uh, but that's okay. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Before we start, by the way, you kept saying. Uh, uh, remember, childcare was originally, I think, going to be June twenty ninth. It was obviously advanced. Stephanie Ebert, who, who, by the way, I don't think we ever had her. On. She is fabulous. I mean, she really we should writes, have her on. She, she writes is great stuff. Spectacular at the Boston Globe. Wrote a piece about how childcare uh, people, uh, twenty five thousand uh, early educators, signed a petition saying that they were being quote crippled 
by the regulations where they have to cut the size in half. There are no floaters from room to room. You have to socially distance little people, meaning kids, who don't quite understand it. And, again, I, I ascribe nothing but the best of intentions to Governor Baker and his team. But I'll tell you, that article and their arguments were pretty persuasive to me that if you're going to have child care centers open, there's got to be a change in the rules. And maybe it adds X percent to the risk, but it's not a child care center. You're not providing the need, well, and again, you can't do it at an affordable price. You know, it's kind of as if we've forgotten what we said at the beginning of this disaster, which was – you don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system, and I think, I think, what we have to be looking at now is uh, the healthcare system is likely not to be overloaded, even though there will be increases in cases mm-hmm. because we are reopening. So that it has to be that balance uh, of risk, and uh, you know, a lot of young couples with young children, their childcare costs are as much as their mortgage or rent, or if not more. Or college. And childcare centers are going to have to raise their prices, just like hairdressers and everybody else is raising their prices because of all these um, extra accommodations they have to make for this kind of renewal, but in an altered way. So I just don't know how people are going to be able to afford this. And childcare workers, as you know, are paid next to nothing. So I, I don't. I think they're right. I think they're right. It's, you're going to have to realize that 18 months old are not going to be able to socially distance. They're just, they're just not. And and I don't know what you do about that, it, um, but I think you can't expect a child care center to run like that. 877 I mean, Remember your, when your kids were 18, 18 months old, all you do is chase them around to make sure they didn't put things in their mouth or fall into the bathtub or some crazy thing like that the i just put don't... the i put the video of big bird in china in the machine and let them watch it for 12 straight hours that's how i <laughs> so i dealt with parenting at that stage 877-301-8970 we got a little off track we're talking about how this is the so far the most significant day in the reopening process for massachusetts and we want to know how you're approaching it with caution or you're not ready to be using all the things that are now available even if in limited fashion or are you ready to just uh, jump in i know a lot i should have said this we're talking about us i know a lot of people who are were thrilled when they saw the weather forecast and today was this beautiful so and actually a few days this week are going to be so that they could finally go to a restaurant outside and i think they're cautious people who will take all the precautions but a lot of people are as i said chomping at the bit and today is bit day let's go to james well, and worcester if we can on boston public radio welcome to the show hi james hi jim hi marjorie pleasure to talk to you um you too. thanks so for calling i actually had it um thank you i actually had covid and i'll tell oh. you i don't wish it on my worst enemy but I, that helps me kind of kind of go about going back to restaurants and stuff while masked with a little more uh, reckless abandon uh-huh. Because hopefully I have some immunity. Hopefully, um, but I've seen I've seen the same thing here around Worcester. Every, every every parking lot, yeah, exactly. Hopefully, every parking lot in the city's got that's where the restaurants got chairs outside. It's all blocked off. I think we're gonna have a worse parking problem now. But hopefully, to your point, Jim, about opening streets up for just pedestrians and uh, restaurants. Hopefully, I know. Hopefully, we can do something like that. But you know, hopefully, people take things seriously a little bit. And uh, maybe we'll see some positive uh, change and hopefully not a big uptick. But actually, and one more thing I wanted to sure. point out is, Marjorie, you were saying about how we're looking at the hospitals and everything about, right, about uh, infection rates going up. 
I work as a nurse here locally, and I've been seeing people who didn't want to come into the hospital because they felt that they were going to get sick if they came in. We're seeing people a lot sicker now, so that's going to be kind of our second wave uh, that's going to push the healthcare system a little bit, not Wait necessarily a, a huge resurgence in COVID. Yeah. What do you mean sick, being sicker now? They didn't take care of other problems. Is that what you're saying, James? Yeah, though any sort of oh, underlying condition that maybe was kind of <clears throat> it, yeah needed to be looked at beforehand, but it wasn't necessarily urgent or I got uh, it. emergent okay. at the time, <clears throat> but it progressed. So joint replacements, heart problems, stuff like that. Well, you know, by the way, one of the things that's being uh, most other medical visit things are approved, not mo- all, but most of them as of today. But before you go, James, how bad did you have it and how are you? <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Um, I definitely had it bad. Um, every symptom in the book. And honestly, it's not a uh, it's not a, a clear path because everybody experiences it differently. I had other friends who had it that just had a stuffy nose or sore throat, but you know, I had fevers, cough. Um, I lost 10 pounds in 10 days because I just couldn't eat anything. I just was drinking water and Pedialyte for 10 days mm. straight. And uh, just achy, very achy. It's like a fever, but on steroids. It's like a, excuse me, it's like a, it's like a flu on steroids. And Do you feel fully like, recovered, like James? Like me. I, yeah, I do. I was diagnosed Good. in uh, early May, and I, and I just stayed inside completely for about three weeks. So that was my big thing. It's just a... Like and, and just walk outside, get some sun. That's a big thing because I live in an apartment building. I can just go to the parking lot and uh, hope I was able to just kind of not completely lose track of time. The new era oh, of the parking lot in America. James, thank you. Yeah. And we're glad you're well. Thank and you. Thanks for calling. You know, I, I, the parking lot that's right across the street from our studio, remember every day we'd see families with little oh, yeah. kids? New Balance, and They'd open right? up the van Balance. doors, yeah. and these kids would just get out and start running <laughs> up and down the parking lot <laughs> like they'd been locked up, you know, inside their bedroom, unable to move. And they got the scooters, they got the bikes, parking lots. But I'm so happy that the playgrounds are opening up today. I mean, that is a huge thing for these poor little kids that have had nothing physical to be able to do inside their cramped houses, you know? You know, getting back to the outdoor dining and the thing James mentioned about parking lots, and I think you mentioned the parking lot at the stockyard uh, uh, across the this, this street, I, I think that all these things have to be approved by local licensing boards or whatever. I'm not sure what the procedure is, but clearly virtually every level of government is sympathetic to the need to relax these restrictions. I would like the notion that as long as people stay safe and continue to adhere to the rules. I like the notion of people in summer weather eating all over the place. I like the feel of it, and I want to be part of it as long as it's safe. So I, I actually am looking forward to this, not just because I want to see these restaurants survive, but also because it allows people in a limited way to reconnect with the rest of the world from which we've all been separated. Again, just be really careful. Where do you want to go? Let's go to Carol and Ipswich. Thank you for calling, Carol. Hi, Carol. Good morning. Your big bird comment made me laugh, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. I mean, really. uh, um, You know, I technically about restaurants, I'm really comfortable about going back, and I don't mind wearing a mask. I don't mind wearing the gloves. I'm excited to go back and go out to eat. I'm not nervous or afraid. The one thing that had me slightly uncomfortable this morning is I was listening to a local news channel, and they had a comment on by the MBTA, and they were saying that they were not going to count people getting on um, the subways or the buses. Maybe they can't, but 
they said they were it was up to individuals to be responsible to social distance and that they although they were going to be somewhat cautious they were not going to keep track of if people were doing that and i um, used to take a train into boston a lot to go to work and i'm still nervous about the trains and especially the subway i would probably walk and not go on the subway i mean i'm still cautious you know i have to say so, carol we discussed this was uh, the I guy don't. who runs the T, Poftak, and Understand. and and I think it was Stephanie Pollock, Secretary of Transportation, when they made that announcement about a week or so ago. They were asked a lot of questions about reporters. I don't understand why there's just not. Maybe I. it doesn't fit Governor Baker's. He doesn't like mandates a lot, and I sure surely don't want to speak for him next time he's on. We'll ask. I don't understand why there's not a hard and fast rule: twenty-five percent capacity, twenty whatever is. The sensible level, but Carol, I totally share your concern, and I don't understand it. But we'll try to get an answer as soon as we can. Carol, thank you for yeah. calling. I, I hate to cast aspersions on my fellow MBTA writers. I mean, when I used to write it, I don't anymore. But I, I don't think people that cram into trains at rush hour are going to suddenly start being that magnanimous to their fellow riders. I just but even if they're it. more magnanimous than you think, why should there be a loose standard? Why shouldn't I it think, just be, here's the I, threshold. I there are only nuts. 11 people allowed on this bus yeah. and only four, I'm making up the numbers, obviously, only 14 people on each subway car. Well, actually, we discussed know. this. Was it Jim Meloisi? We discussed this with, I realized we discussed it with somebody. Yes. And I, I former Secretary of Transportation, I, I just don't, I don't under, uh, uh, understand. But I'm assuming it's because, just like with masks, the governor prefers a strong advisory. And in his defense, it, people are wearing masks for the most part. And would they be wearing them more if there was, you know, some enforcement or a real world fine? I don't know. But uh, uh, when it comes to the tea, uh, which is like one of those Petri dishes we talk about, potentially. I'd like to see a hard number. Marcy and Marcy. Douglas. Hi, Hi, Marcy. Hi. Hi. Um, so I I had to go out this weekend to pick up some, uh, like, hose pieces at Home Depot for mm-hmm. our garden because we're trying to raise our own vegetables. We have bees. Like, we need uh, this watering system. And I was appalled <laughs> by the number of people employees that were only wearing masks on half of their face. They weren't covering their nose. Well, most people breathe out of their nose. There were patrons who didn't have a mask at all. And I feel for you, if you can't wear one for a medical reason, I feel like you should maybe identify yourself so that people don't get all judgy. I try not to be, but I think that the people that I saw probably, I I don't want to listen, never mind. But it's just terrifying. I had a complete meltdown i had to go out into the like outside by our car and like, i couldn't make a purchase because i was like completely overwhelmed my husband had to do everything he brought everything out he's amazing he like like just lay down and breathe but i mean it's still happening and like i'm so excited that our state is opening up again and the retailers can you know get back to business but we still have to be careful you know, you're not the first person, Marcy, that's called about Home Depot. Didn't we have people last week calling about Home Depot? I can't I, I remember. Can't, I don't know why they're operating like that because I wouldn't go um, either. I'd much rather go to my local hardware store. And my local hardware store, everybody's wearing a mask. If you don't wear a mask, you can't come in. Can't so, get in, yeah. 
uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. Um, but wait I a second, doesn't every? That. I'm sorry, she, I, my headphones clicked out for two seconds there. Doesn't every retail outlet, uh, regardless of whether they were allowed to be open early or not, have to require that people coming in uh, have face masks, have face coverings on, masks or whatever it is? Don't they? I don't know, but if if Home I Depot, think so. which is a pretty big operation is not requiring their own employees to wear masks that fully cover their faces. I mean, that, that's not a good sign. Well, you know, I, I'm uh, telling you, I'm still, I'm not going to name them because they're fewer than there used to be. I I do early morning runs uh, here and there to, to grocery stores, and I haven't been uh-huh. to one grocery store yet, not one, where there hasn't been one person at minimum who works there who's not wearing a mask. I, I just don't, I just really? don't understand. Yeah, not one. Not one. I mean, I've maybe done it 10 times in the last two months. It isn't like I'm gone every day. But they're outliers, and you would I'm think surprised. the employers would monitor it. Knowing what? you, Jim, as, 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 knowing you I don't as make I a do, citizen's you don't arrest. accost these people and confront them on their lack of mask wearing. I think I'm in a friendlier mood. I'm in, I'm in a warmer mood when I'm near food. <laughs> I think that's the only thing I can explain. Graham, I'll I tell think— you one thing. What's that? At, at, the, at the protest I was at in Boston last week— I didn't see one person without a mask. JP. Mm-hmm. Well, there were a number of uh, protests in Cambridge this week, and everybody's saying the same thing, that everybody was wearing a, uh, a And they a mask. hand out masks to people yeah. who don't have them. And they hand out water. I, I must say that they've been incredibly organized, handing out masks and water and even, in some cases, feminine hygiene products, Jim. They are? Yes. Yeah, Very impressive. So it's good. Graham and Amesbury, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Appreciate it. Hey, guys, good to talk to you. I'm, uh, I'm breaking the law here in the car. Don't tell anybody. We won't tell the soul. It's okay. We won't. <laughs> um, I'm calling. I, I run uh, a small museum up in Amesbury, and we're trying to figure out whether we can run summer camps. And we are uh, – I've had parents of kids calling, and I've seen where other camps are, are canceling essentially the entire summer. Um, and with Governor Baker, Baker's reopening – phases uh summer camps are in there but uh, the precautions in place make it almost unfeasible to run a summer camp to keep kids separated uh, to keep them you know washing their hands and and with masks on all summer and i'm just wondering what your what your take is on that well i don't have any expertise you do i just say you're not alone there are a ton of day camp owners or runners who were quoted in local media in the last 48 hours after uh, the governor made his announcement, I think it was at 1 o'clock on Tuesday, that phase two would start today, who said the good news is we're allowed to be open. The bad news is we can't afford to be open. It's late uh, to be making plans. Parents are nervous about this kind of thing. So what's going to be the issue that that decides it for you, Graham? Uh, I mean, I think... Well, I think there's two things. I think you have the concerns of parents. Um, you know, do I send my kid? Do I not send my kid? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, for us, I think there's a liability side where sure. yeah. uh, you don't want your name in the paper as being the hot spot um, mm. where maybe, you know, maybe the kid didn't get COVID, but maybe the kid's grandparent when they saw them the next week had it. And so um, even if you adhere strictly to all all protocols, I don't know that that renders you without liability. 
You know, uh, Graham, how depend? You said your your day camp uh, is uh, affiliated with the museum that you're responsible for. Yes, and it's uh, you know we're fortunate enough in that the the income from the day camps isn't going to make or break. Well, us. that was my question. Uh, so yeah. We're we're in a pretty good spot. We don't, you know, caution. It makes sense to not run camps, but um, you know, I'm sympathetic to parents who want to be able to get their kids out there something and sympathetic to other organizations who rely on their summer programs and the income from them. You know, Graham, don't go away. Marjorie, I have a question for you. You were excoriating, and I was joining in, Mitch McConnell, who we love excoriating, for the only thing he cared about in the next bill, which is yet to happen and is less likely Mm -hmm. to happen, unfortunately, apparently, because of the comparatively decent or at least surprising economic numbers on Friday that all he cared about was giving immunity to employers uh, um, and virtually nothing else. Graham's concern about opening a daycare, a, a, a day camp at his museum is around, and he doesn't well, sound like a mercenary no, business guy. Th- He's worried about liability. To me, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but Graham, it seems to me that that organizations and businesses that deal exclusively with children, like child care centers and daycare centers, have to be under a different set of rules because they're not old enough to to follow those kinds of rules. You can't. How, how do you have a toddler socially distant? How do you keep a little toddler from running across the room to another kid or running after the baseball or putting something in their mouth? I mean, that's just not realistic. I mean, obviously, kids in day camp are older. Um, what is the age of reason, Graham? Is it supposed to be seven years old? I'm not sure what it's thought of to be now. But but to me, the rules for child care and day camps need to be different. They have to take reasonable precautions, but they can't be expected to keep kids, I mean, it seems to me we need to have a discussion about what reasonable risk is as we reopen and the understanding that there are going to be an increase in cases and how you handle that. Um, but um, that's my answer, Jim. You want to give yours? Is that satisfying to you, Graham? Yeah, but it, even, you know, if it's a seven-year-old, um, you know, on Monday, those seven-year-olds might be able to maintain a distance. But by Friday, um you know, you're going to be, they're going to be getting closer and closer all week. Probably yeah. just as we all sort of have is the reopening has happened. Um, and I just, I just see that being a, a difficult time. And, um, you know, maybe you can get the parents to sign a waiver, but that, you, that, you know, indemnify you. You know, Graham, yeah. I'm really glad you called, not because I'm happy to hear your quandary, but, you know, Marjorie, considering neither of us run a business, there's so many layers to, you know, what's allowed and what's a good idea for a business. I mean, and Graham is a perfect caller to illustrate that point. I mean, this is really hard. And the child care thing we were talking about with Stephanie Everett's piece, it's you're open, but do you want to well, be open? I, I guess you, you, you look at meat packing plants where people are right on top of each other, and those are big industries. I mean, when I'm thinking, when I was so upset with Mitch McConnell, I was worried about Massive industries that could do things. Oh, I know that. Do things, and again, well, how about small businesses children? like Graham? Again, you know, you, you, it's kids. It's yeah. different. It has to be different for kids because, as he says, you know, how do you enforce that with little kids? I just don't think you can. Anyway, coming up. By the way, people should not hang up because our next guest is going to take these calls too. 
Yeah, you can ask uh, questions about the economy uh, because we're going to be talking with MIT economist John Gruber next with a look at how much the economy will rebound as states reopen. Uh, Jonathan Gruber is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And one of the great unknowns of this pandemic is how much economic activity will come back and how soon. How much is dependent on us and our confidence to reenter society as states across the country reopen, phase two in our own state today. How much depends on avoiding another coronavirus outbreak. How much is dependent on government bailouts or relief. Join us online to talk through this is Jonathan Gruber. John is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT, instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts health care reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth. And the American Dream. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing? We're good. Hey, we're we're good, Jonathan. So so let's start with the the question Jim asked: How much of our economy is going to come back, and how soon? Well, you know, I, as I've said before, economists are at their worst when they're making pro- projections. Uh, we learned that on Friday, John. <laughs> yeah, with the unemployment numbers. Friday. <laughs> Friday was the was the worst miss of a projection, I believe, in economic forecasting history. Uh-huh. Um, now, th- just to focus on that for a minute, folks who didn't follow it, economists had forecast the unemployment rate would go up. It went dramatically down. A um, couple things to note about that. First of all, uh, we don't know how real it is. Survey response rates are down massively. It's hard to survey people during a coronavirus. Um, so we don't know how much of this is real and how much is not. Um, the other point is, it's to the extent it's real, and I believe at least some of it's real, it does reflect the fact that we've put massive resources into our economy. I mean, let's remember, we've put $3 trillion in, um, and that has helped, just as the stimulus during the Great Recession didn't solve all the problems but helped us from getting worse. Uh, the money we've put in so far has helped. That said, that highlights the fact that we can't stop. And indeed, the recent CBO analysis just came out, and their projections better than mine, um, suggest that we sort of bounce back modestly as we are now, but that actually the size of our economy in real terms doesn't re- re- uh, doesn't return to where it would have been until 2030. So that 2030? 2030. And that, in fact, um, that basically we're, we're talking about it's going to take many years for us to regain what we've lost in this massive in this massive dip. Well, you know, one of the things that has surprised me. Well, I guess it didn't because it's it. You learned this the income inequality thing before, but I guess when we talk about the economy coming back, Jonathan, you realize that. The economy for millions of Americans was not very good before coronavirus because their incomes were terrible and they had to work multiple jobs. So w- when we start talking about the economy coming back, I mean, are we just talking about the stock market and unemployment, even well, though people are broke with two and three jobs? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about a couple pieces. First of all, there's the terrific mystery of the stock market, which you know everyone's been saying the stock market from – the end of 2019 is down 2%. I mean, it's virtually back to where it was at the end of 2019. It's amazing. Now, if you think about it, it's perhaps not that mysterious. The stock market doesn't care for workers. The stock market cares for profits. 
And if you think about what's going to come out of this, you're basically eroding an enormous amount of competition by, creating, by forcing a lot of businesses to go out of business. And meanwhile, the most successful businesses, the ones that have the deep financial pockets to weather this storm, could come out more powerful than ever. So it's sort of not surprising that the people who are betting their money on it are betting that the U.S. capitalists are going to come out just fine. So it really heightens what you're saying, Marjorie. Now, you also mentioned the unemployment rate. Let's remember, despite the good news, unemployment is still almost 14%, yeah, exactly. which is right. you know, almost 50% higher than it ever was in the Great Recession, which, after all, was a great recession. So we are really still in quite dire straits, and I think the main thing is, as always with the economy, you have to ignore the short-term movements and focus on the long-term. The long-term is we are going to be hurting for a very, very long time, and that has two implications. One is we cannot give up on fiscal stimulus. I mean, the next date to watch is July 31st. On July 31st, the $600 benefits for UI run out. Um, and basically the question is, uh, are we going to continue to give extra UI benefits? Uh, the, the typical, the regular UI benefits for unemployed people unemployment. will extend until the end of the year. Yeah. Unemployment insurance, I'm sorry, will extend until right. the end of the year. Even that isn't long enough. I mean, we're still going to be over 10% unemployment by the end of the year. So even that isn't long enough. But July 31st, the extra $600, which is a lot of what I think was responsible for our economy bouncing back, will end. Um, and we're going to see a great case of brinksmanship between Republicans who highlight that they think that's too much money uh, and Democrats who want to uh, keep supporting families. So I think we're going to see uh, there's going to be a lot of focus uh, as we approach that date. We're talking to MIT economist John Gruber. We have a few more things we want to broach with him, and then he will be happy to take your questions and thoughts about rebooting the economy and how much economic activity we can expect as states roll back restrictions like ours did in a relatively significant way today with the first day of phase two. The number is 877-301-8970. I want to speak to your issue, though, uh, uh, Jonathan, about further relief from uh, Congress is, at least from what I've read the last couple of days, and this surprises me not at all, I hope I can get this right, is the conventional wisdom of economists is one of the reasons why Friday's news was far better than expected is because the congressional relief bill actually worked, that it did provide enough of a benefit, uh, uh, relief, whatever you want to call it, to uh, propel us back to a better place than was expected, even though your point is hugely important. It's not a good place. It's a better-than-expected place. And then you read a minute and a half after it gets out, leading Republicans saying, well, this proves uh, that we don't need to do the kind of relief package in the future that the Democrats are suggesting because things are working, to which sane people, of which there are at least a dozen left in this country, say, excuse me, gentlemen and ladies, the reason we're doing better is because you actually almost did your job for once. So that is the conundrum that the Pelosi's and others are going to find themselves in dealing with McConnell and others, is it not? You know, ironically, it's a similar conundrum we find ourselves in with the virus, which is social distancing and the lockdown allowed yes. us to sort of That's slow the point. growth of the virus. And everybody's like, the virus is slowed. Let's all go outside. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a similar thing, which is we need to recognize that life isn't black and white, that we made things better through our action, 
but it doesn't mean the problem is solved. And the mm. problem is not solved on the virus, and the problem is not solved on our economy. And we need more fiscal stimulus. I mean, the, 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 our states and cities in particular, which are a big focus of the, of the House proposal for the next bill of, round of stimulus, are in massive trouble. And that doesn't show up right away. Typically, you don't see the trouble showing up to states and cities until about a year after the recession starts, when suddenly their tax mm-hmm. receipts fall. And so we're going to see massive problems there. We are, you know, basically we need more fiscal relief from Congress. And the notion that in some sense uh, the, 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 the amount we've done has worked, therefore we don't have to do any more, is, is pretty nuts. You know, Jerome Powell, who's head of the Fed, who also says we need much more money uh, pumped into the economy. I'm wondering, in previous administrations, did we listen to what the head of the Fed said? I know that <laughs> the, the, I mean, is this a new thing that he gets I mean, ignored? No, I mean, no. In fact, Alan Greenspan was God, right? I mean, we listened to everything Alan Greenspan. That's what I thought. It's, it's not. It's not clear how how much we should have. Um, no, clearly the head of the Fed should have a large influence. Um, and I, I think he does on many, many policymakers. And look, I do think that there are many people, there are more than a dozen people who understand this and want to do the right thing. The problem is, um, you know, right now it's all about, uh, you know, the, the powers really held by Mitch McConnell. And uh, essentially, you know, he, he is he's in an interesting spot because, t- because basically he doesn't, you know, if he wants his, his president to win re-election – he doesn't want the economy to crater, and he's smart enough to know that if Congress does nothing after July 31st, the economy will be heading down exactly as voters are heading to the polls. Um, uh, on the other hand, he is playing fiscal hawk right now. He's played both sides of that fence, but he's playing it right now. And so I think that will be interesting. What it does highlight, and I've mentioned this before, is how critical it is for Democrats in this next round of legislation to get automatic stabilizers in. We talked about that in our last yeah. call about how critical it is that we don't let the economy be held hostage uh, in case Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate and Joe Biden controls the presidency uh, uh, next year. Uh, we need to build an automatic stabilizers to make sure we continue to provide the economy with the support it needs. What are those, please? Automatic stabilizers? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so the automatic stabilizers are basically government programs. Come on, everybody heard this last time. Um, <laughs> are basically... Uh, uh, are basically government programs that uh, that essentially automatically pump money into the economy when times are bad. Okay. So a natural one is extending unemployment insurance to make okay. sure when the economy is bad that unemployed can continue to get their unemployment insurance. And one more thing for me before we go uh, take a break and go to the calls. There was this kind of scary piece in the New York Times talking about the economy experience and epic collapse of demand, and they compared – the false enthusiasm of Herbert Hoover, we all remember him, how well he handled the Depression, uh, back in the 30s, thinking things were pretty good early on in the Depression. We're going to bounce right back. They were essentially comparing people's enthusiasm now to then, which was not reassuring. No, it's not. I mean, to be fair to Herbert Hoover, we didn't have the history to draw on we do now. Uh, yeah. And so it's it's a much much worse mistake now. Knowing our we have we have another century of history to work on, and we know the clear lesson, which is that we can't you know we we can't overreact. And you know we, we make two kinds of mistakes. One is we overreact react to good news relative to baseline. The other is we underappreciate 
the benefits of what's come because we say, well, the problem didn't get solved, therefore it didn't work. And that was a mistake you heard a lot with the Obama stimulus. People said, oh, the Great Recession didn't end, therefore stimulus didn't work. That's just wrong. All models show the Great Recession could have been worse. Indeed, it could have been at 14% unemployment if we didn't have the stimulus we saw under President Obama. Okay, we're talking to MIT economist John Gruber. We're going to take calls from you guys when we get back. Our number is 877-301-8970. The email is bpr at wgbh.org. You can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. at knoxincome.com. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Again, If you're just tuning in, we're talking to MIT economist John Gruber. He'll take your questions uh, uh, about rebooting the economy and how much economic activity we can expect as states roll back restrictions. Our number, the number to reach him, is 877-301-8970. And I don't need to give you any advice uh, uh, about what you should ask in your phone call, but I would suggest one of you say, uh, I think my radio wasn't working when I heard you say, that we'll be back to where we were before in a mere 10 years by 2030. <laughs> Could you give me that one more time in, in oh, a brief version? It, it, that, uh, why? Why 10 years in the minds of so, some people whose judgment you trust, John Gruber? So let's clear about, let's be clear what the fact is. This is according to the Congressional Budget Office, who yeah. provide the best possible by, you know, nonpartisan projections. Mm-hmm. The number is that if you compare to where we would have been without coronavirus, so it's not going to be that we're, we're not going to be back to where we were in 2019 until 2030. But if you look at where we would have been without I coronavirus, okay. we won't get back there till 2030. So essentially it's going to take, if you look at what we call the output gap, which is how much are we falling below where we would have been absent this shock, it's going to take basically a decade to make it up. Okay. Well, that's, well, that's really much better news than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, Let's go to Paul and Lester. You're on with John Gruber from MIT. Paul, thank you for calling. Thanks for your patience. Hi. Hey, uh, Marjorie brought up Herbert Hoover, and uh, I just have to add one thing more than I was going to talk about, because my mother, who was born in 1920, I recently said to her, this guy Trump is the worst president we've ever had. She said, no, you're wrong. She said Herbert Hoover was, and he's only number two. Boy, that's um, really comforting, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. So anyway, my question is, um, you mentioned these companies are going to do so well, the big ones, and where are they going to get the customers from when people don't have money to spend, you know? I think the stock market being up right now is uh, like an illusion, you know, and that sometime in the fall it's going to crash again. So uh, why am I wrong? Well, Paul, it's a great question. I can't say you're wrong. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, as we always say, if I knew for sure where the stock market was going, I, I would be off an island somewhere. I mean, we, we, we simply don't know. I think the reason you may be wrong, and the reason I, I, I think there's a good chance you're wrong, is that even if people have less money to spend, um, that doesn't mean they're going to spend less at Amazon. That means they're going to spend less at other places. And Amazon and Microsoft and Google and these companies will continue to make huge profits. They'll continue to not pay a whole lot of taxes because of the structural corporate tax code. 
and they're going to do pretty well. I mean, the key basically, I think economists have concluded that the, uh, the key driver of this enormous inequality we're seeing, where some companies do incredibly well and many other Americans are hurting, is really just the increased concentration or the increased, you know, monopolization is the extreme, but the increased concentration of economic activity, whereby fewer and fewer firms facing less and less competition are providing more and more of our economic activity. And so even if, you know, the amount of money people have to spend falls by 10%, but there's 15% fewer companies competing for those dollars, those other guys can still make more money. So it really is, it's, it's true, you have a great point, that aggregate demand still matters, and if Congress doesn't come through, clearly I think if, if we reach July 31st and there's no fiscal deal and Congress doesn't provide more stimulus, the stock market will drop. Will it stay down? I just don't think so. I, 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 I think right now we're seeing uh, uh, the belief among the capitalists that, that the capitalists are going to be okay here. Paul, thanks for your uh, thoughts so- and your question. And so when you say the capitalists are going to be okay here, so that kind of means all the uh, disaster that we've seen revealed in this coronavirus where people going so quickly into desperation is going to just not matter? No, no, it's not that it's not going to matter. I mean, basically, um, once again, spending will be down, especially if Congress doesn't act, and that will matter. Uh, but but that offsetting that, the companies that are generating the largest sort of action on the stock market will also be seeing an increase in their market power. And once again, I, I don't want to act too confident here. We, we don't know where the market's going. Um, I just think that sort of the notion that, gee, demand is falling, the market must be down, and why isn't the market down? I, I think the primary answer is just at the end of the day, what the market cares about is the profits of actually, at the end of the day, a relatively small number of companies, and those profits seem to be doing okay. So, if you're right that the big boys will do just fine, in fact, do better than fine, but the demand will be down, and that lack of demand or reduction in demand will be visited elsewhere, good news for Jeff Bezos, horrible news for Main Street USA. I mean, I think Main Street USA is in for, was already in for a tough time. They're in for an even tougher time. I mean, it's just, it, it is really right now, um, Main Street USA is essentially a set of distressed assets that the folks with cash in their pockets can now buy up and increase their consolidation uh, of a lot of industries. And, and I think that, you know, that I, I don't know what's going to stop that. Greg and Amesbury, you're on with uh, MIT economist Jonathan Gruber. Go ahead, Greg. Hi, Greg. Uh, good morning. Thanks. So since, uh, since the crash in 2008, it seems like corporations, which pay little or no taxes, have been able to borrow money for zero interest, whereas your students who, uh, you know, basically are trying to put themselves in a position to contribute to the economy are paying incredible interest on their loans. What about a plan to refund uh, uh, those students who have paid interest and eliminate the interest payments for the students who have not since 2008. So you would be putting a substantial amount of money back into the economy, and you would also be treating the citizens equitably, you know, as equitably as you treat the, the corporations. How about it, John? You know, yeah, Greg, it's, it's a great issue and one that was a big focus in the Democratic campaign. We have $1.5 trillion of outstanding student debt. I, I'm not quite sure how you would justify sort of saying, okay, for those after 2008, you get a break. For those before, you don't. I think that would be a little bit hard to justify. 
Um, but I think the notion that you know there's a lot of student debt out there that people having trouble having trouble paying is exactly right. Um, uh, it's just that'd be really expensive to deal with, and a lot of the people out that student debt aren't actually having trouble paying for it. So I think really the answer is the clear answer is moving forward. We need to move towards a better way of financing college that is not doesn't end up resulting in these giant debts. And other countries have that way, and we even have that option. It's called income contingent financing, which basically means when you go to college, you don't build up any debt, but when you come out, you owe the government a small percent of your income for the next 20 years. So in some sense, it's an implicit debt that you pay back through a small percent of your income. If you end up doing really well, you overpay. If you don't do so well, you underpay. And basically, it all evens out, and it becomes a progressive way to finance college. That's what Australia does. That's what the U.K. does, and that's what we need to move to. There's some state in the Northwest. We actually spoke three or four years ago to the woman who was in charge of it. Some state, Oregon, I think, uh, John Gruber, that's doing that with all public college debt. Is that? Am I right about that? Do you know about that? I, I don't know for sure, but uh, okay. there's a lot of progressive action going out there, and it's, it's, it's certainly a topic in a lot of discussion. You know, here's a question from Anne from Groveland, which I think a lot of people are wondering about that are getting close to retirement. She says, what should I do with my 401k? I'm 63. My husband is 65. Should I close it and take the money? You know, it, this is another reason the stock, you know, there's another reason the stock market's doing well, which we haven't talked about, which is there's nothing else to do right now. So in some sense, literally, there's nothing else is yielding any interest. Interest rates are zero. So part of the reason the stock market's doing well is because you know, when you think about taking market out, money out of the stock market, you're basically saying you're going to put it under your mattress. So it's really a right. game of guessing, is the stock market literally going to go down or just not grow very fast? And no one knows. So I think certainly if you're near retirement age, you should not be overexposed to the stock market. You know, there's lots of age-based funds people can invest in that essentially allow you to ensure that you're not too exposed to risk as you're near retirement. Someone who's actually thinking about retirement should not have, for example, more than, say, half their wealth in, in, in the stock market. Um, so clearly, if, 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 uh, if she's exposed more to the, you know, more than half her wealth in the stock market, I would think now would be a good time to get out. Um, but you never want to fully get out because if, if it turns out that the stock market continues on its wild ride up, you don't want to miss out on that. You just essentially want to balance it as you age to make sure that the bottom line is you never want to have to take money out of the market in the next 10 years. That's the way to think about it. You, you, you never want to be in a situation where, you have, where you're going to need money in the next 10 years and it's going to force you to sell stocks because you don't know where they're going to be. So you want to make sure you have enough of a buffer that you don't need to do that. And then if you have extra money, you, know, you probably want to keep some in the market so you at least can benefit if it continues to go up. Well, I mean, all the experts say diversify. It makes sense, particularly the older you get. And two, I looked at the beginning of this, John, three months ago, and I'm sure you know this. It always comes back. The question is, about after every downturn, the question is, with what speed? We only have a minute left. If you were advising uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, I don't mean that as facetiously as it sounds, what are the two or three most important things that, uh, that Congress should do to speed this recovery, for lack of a better expression. Quickly, if you can, John. I think the number one is relief for states and cities. I think Democrats mm-hmm. have made that a priority. I think it's absolutely right. Um, and I don't think there's any McConnell's talked about it sort of, we can't bail these guys. It's not a bailout. These people have seen a shock that was out of their control, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's appropriate to insure them for that shock. 
Um, number two is we can't let things like unemployment insurance run out. I don't think we need to keep people with 600 extra dollars a week in their pocket. That probably is too much. But we, we certainly cannot have it run out at the end of the year when we've still got unemployment above 10%. We need to extend unemployment insurance. We need to move to a system where we make sure it's there as long as unemployment is high. Um, and then um, I, 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 I guess I would say those are the two major things in my mind. From your lips. Jonathan, thank you. John Gruber, much. thanks. Thank you. You bet. BPR contributor Jonathan Gruber joins us every month. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book, Jump Starting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Coming up, around the world, people are marching in solidarity against police brutality. WGBH News analyst Charlie Sennett joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, for nearly two weeks, people in every state have braved the threat of the coronavirus, the protest, police brutality. And despite some violence, in the beginning, the peaceful marches are showing no sign of slowing down. But will this all lead to genuine change? In a few minutes, we'll ask the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price about this, and if they were surprised when the president couldn't or wouldn't name his favorite verse in that Bible he held high the other day. That's all when they're here for All Revved Up. COVID-19 is creating the food insecurity crisis, and Massachusetts could be at its epicenter. According to one estimate, food insecurity in eastern Massachusetts has written 59% since the onset of the pandemic as one out of every seven face food insecurity. Caught in the middle is the Greater Boston Food Bank, which gave out almost 8 million pounds of food between March and April, a first in the group's 40-year history. We'll talk to Catherine D'Amato, CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank, about the challenges they're facing up ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGPH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. So around the world, huge numbers of people have been holding vigils. I hope you've seen these videos. Organizing protests, painting murals to show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter protests taking place across the U.S. Why is it that these acts of violence and racism that feel so distinctly American are sparking outrage well beyond our borders. Join us online to talk about this and other international headlines. Is Charlie Senate. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, it's good to speak to you. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hope you guys are holding up okay. We are, and yes, we hope you are you. too. Yes. So, Charlie, you read about Australia, Great Britain. You read about Paris, Berlin, Sweden, Zimbabwe. I mean, what is going on here? I think, I don't know. All I think these it's two protests. Things. Yeah, I think it's two things. I think one is this is a real tipping point. I think this feels like a movement in our country that will be with us for a while. It's an, it's a, it's, I think this moment in time is resonating across the world because it's happening as if it's like a twin contagion. We have COVID-19 and rage against systemic uh, injustice and racism. And I feel like those twin strands are coming together globally because there are a lot of other places that feel this. They feel the pandemic, of course, because it's global, 
but they also feel rising injustice and in many cases a police force that is out of touch with their communities like think about places where we're seeing rising populist nationalism like in in the uk where you had a lot of people sort of going in a similar direction to our own with yeah. very intense street protests or take for example france with the rise of the right or look at a lot of the issues we see around around the world are happening in our own country and vice versa. So I think we feel this shared moment because it's a really big moment, but also because this sort of rising authoritarianism feels real to people where they are and they look to America for leadership. And I think they're seeing the streets and the protests and the pushback as a form of that global leadership. And I'm really, it's almost exciting to see internationally that people are recognizing this moment there's a there's a chance here so i was thinking about um how to step back from this and think about it and we were conducting a workshop you know this last week was the week our report for america core members 225 reporters went into 165 newsrooms on monday that is, that so is one hell great. of a first week of work Boy, right? is it ever so as they deployed to the newsrooms we did a training for how to cover civil unrest and I really stepped back and I was talking to the core about the unrest I've covered. I've covered the L.A. riots. I covered the Crown Heights riots in New York. I covered Northern Ireland, um, Belfast in the 90s. I covered uh, the Intifada, uh, both, both Intifadas, but the most recent one starting in 2000 in Israel-Palestine. And Egypt, Tahrir Square, the Arab Spring. And if you think about those times of dramatic civil unrest, I have to step back and say what can feel like this enduring movement can turn out not to be, right? L.A. riots, like right. what did it change? It didn't really change much. Or even Tahrir Square that felt like this 100-year event overthrowing an authoritarian government in Egypt. But then what happened? It was restored. So I think while we're on this incredible tipping point, there's a lot of history we can bear to bring to the equation that can give us context around how do you really make change? How do you really sustain this movement and be sure we don't slide back? I feel like we're at one of those moments, but history would tell us it's very hard to know which way this will go and will it sustain or will we fall back? You know, Charlie, when you were coming up with your uh, uh, reasons for why there has been such uh, an outpouring of support and activism around the world. I, I think, I guess I would like to add two and tell me if you disagree. Mm -hmm. One, uh, Marjorie and I, who for years have been bemoaning the fact that we don't take the streets for anything here, they, most of these other societies that you're describing are much friendlier. I don't mean the government part of the society. The people themselves are much more likely to take to the streets when they're unhappy than we are here. So I'm not in any way minimizing mm -hmm. the importance of what they're doing, but it fits more their MO. But the one thing that you left out that I'm curious to know your thoughts about is, is this not only a good reason to demonstrate in Amsterdam or all these other places, Amsterdam is the most recent image I've seen that is just huge, or is it also a perfect excuse to show your contempt for the president of the United States. And as we've seen in polls, he is held in contempt in virtually every one of these countries, I think other than Israel, actually, in every one of these countries where there are uh, demonstrations. Anti-Trump animus is part of this, right? 
Definitely. And remember the huge demonstrations we had in the lead up to the war in Iraq against George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. Millions yep. of people in the streets yeah, true. across the world to demonstrate. So this isn't new. I think what is new is we live in a globalized age. Uh, and it just strikes me as really interesting that the pandemic is global and the protests are now global against systemic racism in America. There's, this, is, this is a moment in time when we feel really connected to the global and the local. And I think about our news organization, Ground Truth, and WGBH. These are two, two editorial missions that are global and local, right? We have PRI the World and we have the WGBH Newsroom. At Ground Truth, we're constantly working globally and locally, and I think this is the moment we're in. These are global phenomena, and we're going to look for local understanding. And that's, that's just a part of the age we live in. So I don't think it's unique to history, but I think it's a growing momentum in history that things become globalized very quickly, even expressions of, of dissent like we're seeing right now. Why are some of these leaders as hesitant as they are when they're speaking to the to the conditions so unwilling to uh, tie them by name to the president of the United States. I'm thinking of just two examples. I'm sure there are more. Uh, Angela Merkel, who obviously is no fan of uh, Trump's and arguably one of the most res uh, respected world leaders, is taking a pass on coming to the G7, and everybody reads into that. Uh, it's not really about coronavirus. It's about wanting to slight Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau from Canada, if people have not seen this 21-second oh, pause the other day <laughs> when he's asked about what's going on in this country, particularly, I think it was the same day or the day after the clearing of uh, those peaceful protesters, despite what the Attorney General said on the talk shows yesterday, so Donald Trump can do his little photo op across the street, Trudeau very carefully chose his words so that he didn't condemn the leader of the country. He just condemned the policies of that leader. What are they worried about? What are they afraid? He's going to cut off trade or assess tariffs mm -hmm. if they mention his name or he'll tweet something nasty about him? What's the problem? <laughs> it's a great question. And this thin-skinned presidency certainly is capable of these direct personal attacks against anyone who'd criticize him. I bet that is part of their thinking. But I think the thinking is probably bigger than that. And I would be more generous in my interpretation. And I would say that for Angela Merkel, she's a very, very smart woman. Yeah. And I think a very solid leader. And I think she must look at this and realize, hey, what happens on the streets of Minneapolis with a police officer who had, what was it, 17 or 18 17, complaints yeah. against him uh, is allowed to lean on the neck of, of someone who's been arrested for using a counterfeit $20 bill. Talk about disproportionate use of force um, for eight minutes and more than 40 seconds, what is it, 8 minutes and 46 47 seconds? 47 or 49 or something like you that. You know, yeah. like, like we had in our little town here, we just had a, a, a remembrance like so many hundreds of towns across America did where everyone in our town just took a knee for 8 minutes and, and 40, is it 46 or 49? I think it's 47, but we'll check. Seconds. Good. I, I'm not sure. It's such a long time. And I think people like Angela Merkel wonder, how did that ever happen? Like, but that becomes a localized issue. Where, was, where were the other cops? Where were residents? Where was the police chief on allowing this, this over decades to happen of, of police feeling the license uh, that they do in places like Minneapolis or in other cities, including New York and including L.A., 
they feel like it's unfair, I, I would imagine, to blame President Trump for all of this. This, is, this happened under Obama. This happened under Clinton. This happened under both Bushes. This is systemic. And I think maybe the hitch in their, in their swing or the pause you hear is that. And I think in Trudeau's case, it's wondering, well, what, am, what if I criticize Trump? Have I done enough myself? And this is the question in mm -hmm. Canada that people want to know. That incredible photo op, his hair looks great, as always, right? Trudeau is this handsome guy. <laughs> Even in a mask, he looks handsome, right? And he's taking a knee, and he's making sure the cameras are watching him. But the truth is, Canada has its own problems yeah, with that. police yeah. brutality. And I think they, they both think proportionality, and the, certainly in the case of Merkel, she is a big thinker. She might think immediately, is that fair to blame Trump? As much as we might disrespect Trump, as much as Trump's rhetoric uh, absolutely puts out a kind of whistle call for racists as much as Trump's insane decision to try to militarize the response, which he's now thankfully backing away from, should be criticized. I don't know. That would be my interpretation mm -hmm. in a generous way, that she might be just thinking this is not fair to pin it all on Trump with Trudeau. I'd say he's wondering how quickly uh, the newspapers in his own country are going to come right at him if he criticizes Trump for his own failings. Uh, in, in dealing with police uh, brutality in Canada. You were right, it was 846 is the, uh, is the number. Our staff just, right. yeah, just checked it. So um, let's get back to the World Health Organization. The president has been upset with them, thinks that they didn't uh, work quickly enough early on in the corona coronavirus outbreak. Uh, the United States does give them a ton of money in this chart. So what's going to happen? Are we actually going to pull out? And yeah, what's good, um, good question. Uh, great, great reporting uh, by NPR on this. And I'm very proud to say uh, by Ping Huan, who was a uh, reporting fellow for the Ground Truth Project and for oh, WCAI, Cape and Islands Radio. She's an environmental reporter who we had a great chance to work with. She now does environmental coverage for NPR. I thought she had the best story on this, really laying out just how much the United States uh, contributes in dollar figures to the World Health Organization and how much in arrears they are. So they, uh, they, they voluntarily give, I think it's over $600 million, and they're, they're assessed at about $237 million. Um, that's about what Bill and Melinda Gates give. Um, yeah. you know, they, they do, we do a lot as a country, but certainly other sources are coming uh, with big money as well. And there's a real question around what will happen now and a lot more questions than answers, frankly. I mean, no one's sure what this means, because in 1948, when we signed the treaty, the idea was that you give one year notice um, in which if you were going to leave, you'd have to pay outstanding dues, you'd have to announce that you're leaving, and then you'd have a year to do it. That hasn't been announced, actually, in a way that is considered official. There is a hundred and I think it's $198 million in unpaid membership dues. So are we going to pay that as we leave? The, the, the assessment that I thought was, um, felt real to me was that what Trump's really doing is disengaging and saying he doesn't care. It's almost like this childish, incoherent response that we've seen from his administration time and time again on big issues like climate change and now like the WHO in response to a pandemic, which is a kind of leave in a huff with no plan, no expression of clarity, no coherence to the policy and a, real, a, a way of really alienating our best allies at critical moments of need. And I think, I'm sad to say, that's what I think we're seeing here. And I think we're just going to see this thing sort of 
peter out and eventually um, you know we'll find more clarity down the road but for right now there are no clear answers because the government is not providing them even NPR was trying to get an answer from the White House on this and they wouldn't provide one so incoherence is about the only thing I see here well I except there is uh, there is a coherent strategy I mean I, to add to what you said a minute ago it's pretty clear to me it's uh, even in defense of Donald Trump even candidate Trump mm-hmm. talked about the disproportionate share that the United States contributes to things like the UN I don't know if you mentioned the WHO at the time mm-hmm. but this isn't about that this is about the fact that he wants to blame China and the WHO for why the coronavirus got out of control here and deflect attention away from him with election season. It seems to me it's as simple as that. And I Absolutely. have to say, well, we haven't had this discussion with you before. We've had this discussion with Art Kaplan and a lot of the mm-hmm. doctors who've called the show. The fact that the public health experts within the administration are not standing up and saying how dangerous it is to disengage from this international coordinator of information, even if they were imperfect, to say the least, in their response to COVID-19, is disgraceful. Redfield, who runs the CDC, who has basically disappeared from view, when Trump originally announced this, he actually spoke positively to his credit for one brief shining moment about uh, uh, the work that the CDC was doing with the WHO. But have we not heard – we've heard nothing from these doctors and scientists in the last week or so when Trump continues to bash this organization that all of them had said in the past was really important to our effort to coordinate responses to pandemics. I I just, I don't, I know, Marjorie, you're of this school that believes it's better for them to stay inside the good guys, so to speak, and the good women and try to affect the, uh, the uh, president's decision-making. But I'll tell you, day after day, it's clear they don't have the effect. I think Fauci should quit and he should be on television uh, every night on different places offering his his unvarnished opinion as opposed to – I think he should definitely get out of there. But you know, he, I, I that's would, different. I, would, I, I, I think, um, Jim, I would just say thanks for when I tend to think too far out there globally, we do need to come <laughs> back to the politics at hand. You're absolutely right, and thanks for bringing it up. I, I, I do think this administration – works on a on a hydraulic system that revolves directly around partisan politics and a pending election. So you're right. To frame it that way, that's totally fair. I was trying to offer a little bit of global context, but even globally, the expressions we see globally often have everything to do with domestic politics in a mm-hmm. way that I think is unique to this administration. You could certainly make the case it's true with other administrations, and it has been true, but this administration, the tenor and the tone is unique. I thought there was a moment in the... Um, in the Sunday shows, the kind of mainstream, you know, like ABC, um, CBS, uh, Fareed Zakaria on CNN, uh, Jake Tapper on CNN. This, this week, there was a lot of talk of complicity, of what is it that the Republican leadership is failing to stand up to this president when he tries to militarize the response to, to the demonstrations in the street, a really dangerous crossing of a threshold that uh, we saw Mattis, General Mattis speak out against, and we've seen others speak out against. Colin Powell gave a really powerful interview speaking out against this and talking about why this was so important for us to note and and, uh, noting that the Republican leadership is failing to challenge this president on on these very big matters of crossing lines of normal that just cannot be met with silence. And Fareed 
you know, I, I listen to him every Sunday. I, I am a real follower of his work because I think he has a very insightful way of looking at the world and how we can think about our own country here in the United States in relation to the world. And he talked about the psychology and philosophy of complicity in the face of authoritarianism. And I swear this feels like way too radical, right? Like this is a real lefty argument. Remember the series we did, Democracy Undone, last year, where we looked mm -hmm. at the rise of populist nationalism around the world in places like Hungary and Brazil, in India, and in the United States of America? I think hearing mainstream media, hearing this weekend, people talk about this feeling of a rising authoritarianism of if, if we have a White House that starts to do things like militarize uh, the streets so that the president can have a photo op with a Bible, we start crossing into lines that if they go unmet, then you really are creeping toward authoritarianism and you have to be worried. I'm hearing that, that phrase used more and more. I'm hearing that framing and understanding of this moment more and more. And I think it's part of the time we live in that we have to think about that history and, and the weight of history and what it means to be complicit and silent. And I think the WHO and the failure of the doctors to speak out is sadly very much a part of that chorus of complicity. Well, well we, should, know, uh, this, we should take a second to mention Mitt Romney, not only speaking out, but going to a demonstration. Lisa Murkowski, who, and again, everything is relative, struggling, ben even Sass. though struggling is, uh, and there have been a few, right, Sass? But, but a you, few know, who, you know what's upsetting about this, though, is that, uh, we think of ourselves as, you know, the exceptional country, the United States of America, all the wonderful things we've done. In other countries, when you speak out, you're as good as dead, whether it's, you know, the Russian doctors that got pushed out the window because they were speaking out of coronavirus or the people that got poisoned, or we know what happens in China or North Korea, those totally authoritarian. In the United States of America, you're not risking your life. You're not risking going to jail in these cases. You're risking... Um, getting out primaried in the Republican primary or not getting to be a, a, a talking head on Fox News. It's depressing to me that we, are, we lack such courage uh, in our politicians. That's what's really sad to me. Uh, in other it countries, people indeed. risk and their necks, and we're just worried about getting out primaried. I mean, that's the only thing. I, and Mitch McConnell would say it's judges, I guess. That's what he would say. He's mm -hmm. going to get a million unqualified judges on the on the courts, but that's well. He not might not very... call them unqualified, but that is what he would <laughs> well, say. Well, most of them. Well, I shouldn't say most, but many of them have been totally unqualified. So, it's you depressing. know, I think of um, I think of Kentucky and Mitch McConnell and the challenger who is coming up against him, Amy McGrath, I believe it is, who is the candidate yep. who's trying to take his seat. And I think that we as journalists realize that in Kentucky, that's a place we weren't listening carefully enough to, right? Like we know, we know that, that especially Eastern Kentucky, the, the, the anger that's there in those hollers of people who relied on a coal economy and who felt like both Clinton and Obama abandoned them and the great yep. society abandoned them. They turned their rage. They voted for Trump. You know, Trump isn't doing much for the coal economy either. And I, I think Mitch McConnell, I'll be interested to see. I mean, the, you know, the safe money is he wins, right? But, but I don't know. I think that that place was once solidly democratic. It got fed up with what they would see as the lies of the great society that never came through for them. They turned to Trump. They're not seeing anything there. 
we need to be really good as journalists now to be listening to what the anger is saying right now. And I think there's a lot of expressions of inequity that we look at through a racial prism, that we need to look at through a racial prism, particularly with police brutality. But the lack of health care, the inequities of a system that's been exposed by COVID, those inequities exist for a lot of people who are constituents of Mitch McConnell, too. And I don't know how that's going to get expressed in this election. I have stopped guessing. I was never good at guessing anyway. I've never been good at guessing on politics. I certainly wouldn't want to try to guess now. But we have kind of a, just a really important role right now as journalists to be sure we are listening to the ground, not only in Minneapolis, not only in the streets that are seeing the unrest, against this outrageous uh, police brutality and systemic racism. But also, how, do, how, do Mitch McConnell's, you know, how, do, how does that community feel? How do those voters feel about the inequities yeah. that are being exposed yeah. through COVID? Because, again, I just see this as, as we are dealing right now with two contagions, COVID-19 and rage. And I think they feed off each other. They're directly connected around this helix of inequity. And I think, uh, I think it will come down to how it all plays out in the election. It's, it's truly, truly this global and local moment. And I don't know how it's going to pan out, but I know we are in uh, a tipping point uh, for our country and I think a turning point in history. And from everything I've covered at those big moments in history, this really feels like one right now, right these days. Charlie, thank you very Charlie, much. Charlie, good to talk to you as always. Thanks, Charlie, you guys. Hang in there. We'll be in touch. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie is a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Thanks again, Charlie. Coming up, amid racial unrest in the United States, Spike Lee's latest film hits Netflix. Bob Thompson, our TV man, joins us for that and more. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan, Jim Browdy. If comedy is tragedy plus time, what happens when the outsized tragedy of George Floyd's murder is very much in the present tense and the comedians who host late-night TV have to respond? It turns out that they may be as good at being somber and sober as they are at being snarky and satirical. Join us online to talk about this and other TV headlines is Bob Thompson. Bob is a professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hello, Bob Thompson. Hello. How are you two doing? We're uh, surviving. Hey. I'm sure you are, too. Great. Um, good to talk to you, uh, Bob Thompson. So uh, tell us, what is going on with, with Late Night? I've seen a couple of things, but certainly not very much. Well, a lot. And this is very different, of course, than after September 11th. After September 11th, there were the very somber returns, but relatively quickly, they got back to comedy. And that comedy was not September 11th oriented or related after they did their first uh, uh, first returns. Uh, in this case, we already had all of these late-night people who had adapted to coronavirus by uh, going doing uh, their, their shows at home. But now we got into the George Floyd protests and uh, that, that whole story, and they're now, uh, they spent the last week talking about this, but not returning to comedy as usual so much, and very much addressing the issue itself. 
Jimmy Fallon, I suppose, on Monday a week ago was the most unique one because Jimmy Fallon had two issues. Number one, the comedy show had to deal with all these things that were going on. But number two, the story had come out, and I don't know why it took so long, that uh, Jimmy Fallon, of course, had done blackface on Saturday Night Live uh, back in 2000 doing a Chris Rock uh, impression. So he came back on Monday, apologized for that, and then, of course, kind of set the stage how all the comedy people would do, which was essentially interviewing people. He had the president of the NAACP uh, and interviewing people and talking very seriously about these issues right in the middle of a comedy show, once again proving that late night can be relevant. You know, I also read, I think in a New York Times story, we pulled some sound, too, that Seth Meyers, I think for the whole week, has allowed Amber Ruffin to do the opening yes. on the right of the show. And she, I believe, is the only African-American writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Here's a, before you give us your what's actually going on there, here's a little bit of uh, Ruffin. Uh, look, I have a thousand stories like this. The cops have pulled a gun on me. The cops have followed me to my own home. And every black person I know has a few stories like that. Many have more than a few. Black people leave the house every day knowing that at any time we could get murdered by the police. It's a lot. And sometimes when you see news footage like we have seen the past week and you hear people chalking it up to a few bad apples instead of how corrupt an entire system is, it becomes too much. And that's what I wanted to say. And I wanted to end this with something hopeful to, you know, provide some comfort. But maybe it's time to get uncomfortable. Was I right, Bob, that, that she has done every night for a week? She has. Ever, and yeah. it, it would be really useful, I think, to put these all together and they would become a manual of what everybody's talking about. But these, this is evidence, which is how regular people minding their own business get hassled because they're uh, they're black. So Seth Meyers would introduce the show each of the days last week, and then right after the introduction, he'd turn it over to Amber Ruffin, who is, as you pointed out, she's a writer on the show. She also performs a lot on the show. And she would tell these just very almost mundane-seeming stories about how cops would uh, uh, harass her. One story where she was dropped off and she was going to pick something up at a friend's, and she was really happy, so she was skipping to the door. And skipping was suspicious enough to get her uh, uh, to get her harassed. Uh, once again, she was with someone else, and then when the uh, uh, when she was alone, the cops were asking her all these questions. When her white friend came along, the attitude completely changed. Very daily life stories that are very normal uh, in her life. And, and I hope Seth uh, Myers keeps doing this because together they make a really, really powerful argument. You know something, j- just a quick aside on this. After the O.J. Simpson case, which is back, what, 92, 93, 94, something like that, when he was acquitted, there was a million stories about how white America was shocked and black America totally understood it because of the the cops right. in L.A. were so brutal with uh, African-Americans. 
we talked then of all the prominent people all across the country, judges, actors, uh, famous businessmen, black, who'd been harassed by the cops their whole lives. We talked about it for about six months. That was 30 years ago, practically, and, and we forgot about it. So I hope this is indeed different because obviously this is not new and um, it, it shouldn't be new to people, but you get the sense that a lot of us have forgotten about that. So. Well, I hope, I hope it uh, changes things, too. But I have to say that I'm very, very cautious in my optimism, because as you point out, all those discussions we talked about before were well before the birth dates of my students. That was a long right. time ago. Exactly. School shootings, this kind, of, uh, uh, this kind of thing. We keep thinking, finally, the, as everyone says, tipping point is going to be reached, but uh, that tipping point always seems to be e- eluding us. Well, I accept that. Let me just say, uh, if you watch uh, CNN or even go out on the streets of Boston, uh, this is different. I'm not making any predictions I so. either. I hope this so. This is a, a different in so many ways, so I hope so too. In any case, we're talking to Bob Thompson, our TV guy. So tell us about uh, Sesame Street and CNN teaming up, Town Hall on Racism. Yes, on Saturday it was. They did a uh, hour-long special with all the Sesame Street characters, and they would be in the little checkerboards like we'd see in regular CNN, where you'd have experts. Van Jones was the ho- uh, one of the hosts, <laughs> and all these people, and then they'd get experts to come in. But it was all geared toward uh, uh, toward the Sesame Street uh, audience, which is of course primarily preschoolers, but older kids uh, as well. And they didn't pull any punches. They, it was very candid. It was a very frank discussion, of course, uh, appropriately geared to that uh, uh, to that age group. But it was a nice attempt, and we've seen these before. Uh, Nickelodeon has done these uh, kinds of things before. Mr. Rogers, way back in the day, uh, dealt with the uh, assassination of uh, Robert Kennedy, I think it was. Um, So we've seen these attempts to address children who obviously cannot avoid these stories that are happening. Uh, And I think it was done in a pretty sophisticated and responsible kind of way. We've got a little sound from this as well. Um, Here's a moment from this CNN Sesame Street town hall where Elmo talks to his dad over a Zoom call about race. Racism? What's that? Oh, racism is when people treat other people unfairly because of the way they look or the color of their skin. The color of their skin? Oh, Elmo doesn't understand, Daddy. Elmo has... Friends with different types of skin. Oh, and fur, too. Black, brown, pink, purple. I know, Elmo, but not all streets are like Sesame Street. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's, That's an understatement. <laughs> it is. And, and, and in, in many ways, when you hear something like this in an attempt to explain it to a preschooler like Elmo, uh, the, the, the obviousness of it all comes out. Uh, and I guess that's what we all hope, that every street could be like Sesame Street. So, Bob, okay. let's, uh, after uh, a couple of uplifting things, comparatively speaking, what's your worst this week? 
Well, of course, there was a catalog of worsts uh, over the week. Uh, all of this uh, coverage, not only of the George Floyd uh, issue, but the stuff going on in Buffalo, arresting journalists, all this other kind of thing. So I'm not even going to try to categorize and uh, uh, rank the, all of these worsts. So let's just go back for worse to the usual stupid stuff that we often talk about in this uh, category. We remember, of course, when the virus first started, that uh, the Tiger King came out. Remember Tiger King and Zoom yep. were the two big things yep. of the early uh, uh, virus era. And in many ways, Tiger King back then was, was kind of a fun release. It was this ridiculous documentary, and all this other stuff was going on, and somehow Tiger King uh, helped us get through that, whatever. Um, however, now they're trying to, of course, squeeze every drop out of the interest in uh, Tiger King. And uh, last week, Investigation Discovery came out with the truth behind Joe Exotic, the Rick Kirkham story. And this, of course, was uh, Joe Exotic's uh, producer for his little web series, and he had been keeping his own video diaries, and they made a one-hour special about this. It was one thing when Tiger King, which was actually an interesting, well-produced documentary, was giving us something to watch while we were going through coronavirus. It's an entirely different thing, Absolutely. I think, to drop Tiger King upon us again in a not very well-produced, not very interesting little documentary in the midst of the George Floyd story. The dissonance in those two was really extraordinary. So not only was it not a very good show, in fact, it was pretty bad, uh, its timing, I think, was also really creepy. Uh, by the way, the only thing I have to disagree with you is when you said something at the beginning, like Joe Exotic at the beginning of the coronavirus pro provided relief for a lot of us. It provided relief for me for about 45 minutes. That was about the <laughs> – I, I, I just – I tried, and I never could quite – get into it like much of no. america but i did uh, i did try okay so from so worst to best there uh, bob yeah best uh how about rami second season second now season. rami was a show i think we give it best to when it came out in its first season first time around uh and this is of course about a muslim american uh, in new jersey a millennial with many of the ways that millennials talk and think and uh, all the rest of it but he's also a deeply spiritual guy who's trying to negotiate all of that uh in modern uh, new jersey well, the second season comes, and he begin. He meets a. Uh, he goes to a, uh, a Sufi center, and he meets a uh, his comes kind of his teacher, played by Mahershala Ali, who well, of course has uh, won Oscars and has uh, done some extraordinarily uh, Moonlight and the Green Book and all the rest of it. Um, and it's a really, really interesting, and both at the same time. Very, very serious, but also within that seriousness, uh, hysterically funny in subtle, understated uh, sorts of ways. Uh, if you haven't watched the first season, you may as well start start there uh, and then just keep going because now the second season is uh, is available and is just as good, as, if not better. This is on Hulu, by the way. We've got some sound from that, too. Rami finds himself at loose ends after returning from a trip to Egypt in this piece, and he goes to his mosque for some guidance. It feels like every time I get close to figuring something out about myself, I end up in a relationship, like a, a sexual relationship. And it's not just sex. It, it, it's, it's also porn. Like, uh, 
like a lot of okay 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 enough we don't need <laughs> too many details okay i need you to maintain your voodoo throughout the day it will help keep allah on your mind at all times you go to the bathroom you make voodoo you pass gas you go make voodoo right away no hesitation this is very important lastly try fasting there's no food the other things do not get so much energy um I've tried a lot of these things. Like, I, I, I prayed and fasted all Ramadan, and, and I still... So, be like our prophet. Our prophet did not watch porn. Be like a prophet. <laughs> it's just the prophet didn't have porn, so... Uh... The prophet is the prophet. You know, <laughs> I've only watched one of these from season one, and I have to say, I don't know why I didn't watch more. It was so great. And, and, and this is totally anecdotal, but I don't hear a ton of talk about this. Is this doing well? I assume it's doing well enough to have a second season, but it is spectacular. It, it is. I mean, it's streaming, so what constitutes doing well yeah. is different because it's not so much how many people watch it the first time, but it's the slow uh, accrual of uh, of audiences. But it's gotten a lot of cr- critical acclaim. The second season, the second episode, a uh, a war veteran gets befriended by uh, by Rami, and it's really, really a moving uh, a moving episode about uh, tolerance and love and all these serious things. But slipped in there are uh, uh, Rami has a friend uh, uh, who, who you know these little throwaway lines like uh, his friend comes up and says. I'm switching mosques. I gave them my two weeks. <laughs> Stuff like that. You, know, you talk to the imam about my mom. Um, these lines that are just completely uh, uh, thrown out. Uh, but also, in the, it, there, there's a, a sense of earnestness and sincerity that, that we don't see a lot of, especially in this high-pedigree quality television. Did Rami Yusuf, Yusuf, did he write these two, or is he just... Yeah, he uh, wrote almost every episode Dude, or co-wrote them, great. even directs a bunch. So he is clearly the auteur of this operation. Talking to Bob okay, Thompson. Okay, sounds, sounds very funny, just that little clip. Okay, Bob Thompson, what's Spike Lee up to? Oh, that's my what to watch for this week. Friday, his first Netflix uh, uh, movie gets uh, released, The Five Bloods, which is uh, a bunch of veterans returning to uh, Vietnam in search of their squad leader and buried treasure, uh, that kind of thing. So that's uh, what to watch for uh, Friday, Netflix. But also, he released, when Don Lemon did that little... um, uh, what was it? I can't breathe. It was a special on the uh, George Floyd thing. He had Spike Lee as a as a guest, and Spike Lee released a very short film, debuted it uh, there, uh, called The Three Brothers, Radio Rahim, Eric Garner, and George Floyd. And it intercuts scenes from the movie that, uh, a classic now, Do the Right Thing, with these police encounters with these other two non-fictional characters and very, very short film, but very effective, very moving. And all kinds of people from the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times have been doing pieces about how now is the time to revisit that original Spike Lee classic. By the way, we have a little sound from the trailer of uh, Defied Bloods that uh, Bob was talking about. Here it is. Black G.I., is it fair? to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here. Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. 
I dedicate his next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. You know, Bob, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure this was made for uh, theater release, and obviously it's not going to theaters. It's going to Netflix. Is there any analysis, I assume there's tons of analysis, about whether or not these films, even ones that are not huge budget, uh, you know, blockbuster types, but like this Spike Lee thing, about whether or not they make money when they end up having to stream right away rather than be in theaters before they go to a Netflix? Well, I think, now I may be wrong about this, but I think this was actually a deal with Netflix. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but I believe this was a deal with, uh, you know, we, we pointed out that everybody gets a deal with Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I think Spike Lee uh, was one of them, although I uh, will, could be corrected on, uh, on, on that. The the economics, again, between streaming and releases, of course, with, with original releases, you get the reports of what the box office was the first on the first weekend, and they compare that to all other box offices uh, throughout history, and everybody tries to break the record and all of that. Streaming is a different kind of uh, uh, situation. Once again, it's all about putting things into inventory as opposed to opening, uh, opening uh, weekend. At the same time, as we've heard on many occasions, the deals that these uh, many people are getting uh, for streaming are pretty pretty sweet deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and, so, the, and 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 Netflix, with the exception of what I consider to be that phony data they released, when, what was that thing called, Bird Bath or whatever that bird thing was last uh, last uh, year? They don't release numbers, do they, or do they? Right. They well, they they release numbers when they feel like releasing. Right. Okay. And right, they okay. release the numbers that they. Uh, they want to release, but no, we don't get the the kind of things like box office or Nielsen, where we've got semi objection uh, objective. Although both of those have their own uh, problems uh, in their accuracy, but uh, Netflix, no, we don't have a sense uh, until they give it to us. By the way, we have one last thing. Our, our June, my colleague, correct? It's not Bird Bath, even though Bird Bath would have been a better title. It's called. Bird Box, and he writes it was terrible. <laughs> I think it was terrible as being kind to the 75 million or whatever viewings that... Uh, I didn't that... correct you on Bird Bath because I, I, I agree. I think that would have been a better title. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about that last thing. Um, quiz? What is, what's the deal yes. with this quiz? Oh, okay. This is a delightful uh, uh, series, and it's only three parts, so it's not a big commitment. Three parts, three hours. It moves quickly. It doesn't stretch the story out uh, uh, forever. Um, this was a, a, a British show, uh, and it's now on AMC. Two episodes have already played. The final episode is on Sunday. Uh, and uh, Michael Sheen plays the British host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the original Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And this is based on a true story. Marjorie, you brought this up very briefly when we talked about Jimmy Kimmel bringing back Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. This was on the British series, but it was about a couple of people who scammed the system, a guy who wins uh, a million dollars with people coughing in the audience to give him the right answer and all this complex Uh. sort of stuff. Um, uh, it's a lot of fun. First two episodes, again, it moves quickly. It's not drawn out to ten uh, episodes, and I can't wait to watch Sunday's finale. By the way, I can't even think of the guy's name, so I shouldn't bring it up. But the guy who is the, I think, the guy who is accused of cheating, the actor who plays him is the actor who plays one of the son, the son-in-law in Succession, who is 
brilliant in succession, which I'm really missing. Like and most Matthew of them McFadden. Are. That's the yeah, guy. Matthew and, McFadden. Right. And, and uh, uh, he, he, yes, he is very good. And there's a number of other uh, people that many people wouldn't uh, wouldn't recognize. And uh, Sheen, as the uh, as the host, is he he plays the perfect uh, millionaire game show host. We of course know the host of uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is Regis Philbin, but that show started in uh, 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 in the UK. It didn't start here. And Regis Philbin okay, to, to, to come full circle, as we've discussed before, wasn't Regis Philbin the first guest on David Letterman the yes. night that he, he and Dan Rather were the two guests? Right, Regis first show after nine eleven. Right, that's that is you are correct. That's right. Little television history. Kathy, uh, Kathy Gifford to the uh, Taliban. Take on the Taliban. It was pretty funny. Like he was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Hey Bob, great to speak to you. Thanks so much. Thank hey, you. Thank guys. you, Bob. Okay, talk soon. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Coming up, the president's support from evangelical voters is slipping. The Reverends Iron Monroe and Emmett Price join us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And for all of you cynics out there who thought Trump was using the Bible last week as a prop when he made that pilgrimage to St. John's Church, a 2015 interview he did with Bloomberg Politics reveals how devout Trump truly is. You mentioned the Bible. You've been talking about how it's your favorite book. And you said, I think last night in Iowa, some people are surprised that you say that. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favorite Bible uh, verses are well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal. So I don't want to get into there's verses. No, there's I don't no want to get into it. No, no, it means I, a I lot just, to you that you think about or cite. The, the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. <laughs> Even to cite a verse that <laughs> no, you like. No, I don't want to do that. You're I mean, an Old okay. Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. Probably <laughs> equal, pretty much. Join us online for oh their take gosh. on this and more. Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. They join us every week for All Revved Up. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detours African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett Price is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. They're also the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast, Reverend Monroe, Reverend Price. Good to have you both. Happy Hey, thanks for having us back. And to you. Well, who better to ask than two reverends? I don't think I've ever seen someone hold up a Bible. They open it and they read something from that Bible. So let's start with you, Emmett. Uh, what'd you make of that? Just kind of brandishing the Bible like you were, you know, with your sword out there and shield out there in some battlefield. What'd you make of it? Well, you know, Marjorie, I'm trying not to give uh, President Trump any more of my emotional currency, but I will say this. Did you see when he opened, when he opened the Bible, the amount of dust that flew out of there? <laughs> but I'm bummed. Thank there you. you. Go. There you go. Uh, no, wait I a mean, second. Can some... we stay? No, I want to stay on this for a second. In all okay, seriousness. When, uh, for those who didn't know what was going on, and I did not know what was going on, 
when I saw him walk over to the church, and obviously I was watching the demonstrations, which were peaceful, despite what Attorney General Barr said, and then they were cleared out with tear gas and other things. Despite I'm what he assuming, also said. I'm assuming, that's right, I'm assuming that he's holding it up, and at some point, as Marty said, he's going to read from it, do something with it, and he doesn't. He just sort of spins it around and, and, and holds it up. And again, starting with Emmett, I, is there a piece of his, let's narrow it, his evangelical constituency who nodded and said, thank goodness the President of the United States is standing up for what we believe in? How did that solidify? What am I missing? How did it solidify anything? Well, I'm not sure it solidified anything. I think it was a stunt to attempt to bring his base back to him because he's losing them by some of his tweets that are going on and that are causing, you know, melee and ruckus uh, and rather peaceful protests. So it was a signal. I think it was a photo op. The challenge is, uh, and I'll say it this way, this is the first time I think in my entire life that I have agreed with Pat Robertson, uh, mm. the televangelist, <laughs> evangelical, who, yeah. who, was cho- who was chosen to disavow himself, perhaps temporarily, perhaps long term, from Donald Trump. This yeah. is the first time in the history of my life that I'm on the same side with this guy. Yeah. Uh, so, Irene, yeah, do you... What did you read yeah, in uh, this? I have to agree on so many levels here. A couple of things here. This is one time the good book that we call the Bible was scripted in a bad scene with a borrowed Bible. I mean, it was just outrageous. But I actually did see this as really Trump pimping the symbols of American Christianity, which is the church and the Bible, to his evangelical base. As as a matter of fact, I would say that we saw blasphemy in real time. I so appreciated when Joe Biden said in one of his interviews that I just wish he would open it because if he did he would know to go to the sermon on the mount you know where it says here blessed are the peacemakers the whole Mm -hmm. idea to use the bible as a symbol to, to as a symbol really of violence division and white nationalism i mean I I was reminded, interestingly enough, of Tiananmen Square, the way in which they tear gassed and the violence that just ensued to clear that area. I was was most troubled by it. But I have to tell you, he has always been working towards a kind of white nationalist theocracy. And actually, his favorite scripture is because after that interview where he didn't want to Say, this is very personal. Personal. At some point, he did say, "My favorite scripture is an eye for an eye," and I think that uh, his time in this presidency has indeed shown that. You know, yeah. how much so does it matter a- that people like the the uh, is it Bishop Buddy? Is that how you say your last name? From St. John's was appalled. We know Wilton Gregory, <laughs> the Cardinal of Washington, was appalled the next day when he went to out, uh, stand outside the statue with Melania Trump uh, of John Paul. We know that the Cardinal from Boston in this morning's Globe, we read a statement from him. Does that matter to other segments of the religious community that swear by, a poor choice of words, that swear by Donald Trump? Or is there movement in that world? I mean? No. Oh, well, no. uh, Irene, but then I have it. Go ahead, well, Irene. I was just going to say, no, I was going to say no, because, you know, one of the things that King talked about is the appalling silence of the good folks, and mm-hmm. that there's been times for white Christians to move as a collective body across denominations and religious, you know, affiliations to really tackle Trump. At this point here, there's a groundswell that moves them 
to move, but they need it as moral leaders to move sooner than this this moment. And so, no, I think that everybody wants to now be on the right side of justice because it is so egregious not to be. Emmett? Yeah, well, one poll. This, this, yeah, this, oh, go, go this ahead. is the other Emmett. This, this is the other Emmett. Um, that, that's I, right. I, Thank I, you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think these statements are actually very important because, and, and, and Irene kind of made the point that nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to be called a racist. And in this season where if you don't have a BLM, Black Lives Matter t-shirt on, there's something wrong with you. And so when Cardinal O'Malley says something, when the different bishops say something, when other clergy leaders say something, now the, the, the test is, are they going to stand in the truth of what they're saying? So that's to be determined later on. But nobody wants to get caught not saying something right now. So you have statements from corporate entities, statements from institutions, statements from places, by golly, have, who have been racist in their own internal mechanisms are making statements now about how they disavow and, and can't stand for this. So it's going to be interesting, but I think the statements are very important because now there's a written record for people to be able to hold folks accountable. Yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah, I was... agree with him on that. I really do. Because what happens like with O'Malley, you know, I mean, we got to understand that the church is a business. And what happens at this point, particularly since the sex scandal, they have lost a lot of their white parishioners. And so they understand that the global South and those black and African immigrants that come here, you know, are mostly Catholic. So they got to figure out in a very savvy business way how to cater to that particular demographic group. What I'm hoping what will come out of all of this since Black Lives Matter, it matters in the church, the Catholic church, that it will be some sort of lobbying, uh, you know, power for black Catholic parishioners to lobby for a black pope. I mean, that's what they did when they got Pope Francis. They wanted to reach out to the Latin American community, and that's what they did. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a dramatic shift, at least according to one poll. This Public Re- uh, Religion Research Institute uh, was polling uh, different religious groups. White Catholics' support for the president dropped by almost half between March and May. And this is before really? this Bible incident. It went from 60% approval to 37% approval by May. So that's huge. And um, I-, I would suspect... Um, you know, a lot of that was before we even got to the worst of the of the or the most dramatic examples of the protesting all across the country. Well, it's on the last couple of weeks, so it is before that. I mean, exactly. it's just two weeks ago today. Hey, can I seize on something that uh, we weren't going to talk about? But you mentioned, uh, Emmett, a second ago, uh, these corporate statements. And I have to say, every time I read one and I would say half of my inbox and my email is uh, yeah. corporate support for Black Lives Matter is you yeah. sort of feel, I, I feel like a sucker at first because so many of them are so beautifully written and so moving, and then you have to stop yourself and decide, I want to Google this company to see what their history is, to see if their newfound sensitivity to racial oppression is believable. I mean, I have Howard Bryan on tonight talking about there's one name that, interestingly, Roger Goodell chose to ignore uh, in yeah. his uh, in his statement the other day, and the the first of the two names is Colin, and you know what right. the second one is. But but I'm serious, uh, it, it, Irene. Starting with you on this one, it, there is it, it is 
heartening, at least for a minute and maybe longer, when you read these. I've never seen anything like this from corporations. And if even only a third of them are making up a number are heartfelt, that's that's immense, isn't it? Or am I just being a no, fool? It's, it's, it's too little too late. And I agree with Emmett in, 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 in that when we look at this moment in time, everybody wants to be on the right side of history. So look, yeah, at, let's right. look at the NFL. Let, let's look at Roger Goodell, right? Now he speaks affirmatively that black lives matter, that what Colin, you know, not Colin, what, what is his name? Yeah, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, did now he that now all of a sudden he gets it and and not only does he get it, Drew Brees get it after he had to you know backtrack his statement. So this is it if you really get it. This is if they really get it, like the NFL, right? Seventy percent of the NFL players are African American or or of African descent. Three head coaches are black, and none of the five vacancies this year have been filled by, you know, brothers of color. Mm-hmm. Another thing, they can rehire uh, Kaepernick if they're very, very serious. They can listen, educate white players, you know, in terms of how to be uh, uh, less racist, because I don't, I don't think you can ever totally expunge it from them. But I think that there are things that they could do um, if they're very serious and stop pandering to the bully in the White House. So... I just feel like, you know, it, it's a moment for them. Um, they don't want to lose mostly their white progressive base more so than than the concern about their black football players and police brutality. Emma, do you, you, we, for those who have not been listening to the Revs with us, a couple of years ago you told us you stopped watching a sport you love, professional football. So what? I didn't mean to focus just on the NFL, but since Irene did, what was your reaction to the Colin Kaepernick free comment from uh, the commissioner of the NFL? Yeah, I thought it was ironically strange because the way that George Floyd died was with a knee on his neck. Yeah. So if there was ever a pivot or a hinge yeah. to, to actually make a, a valid statement, that would have been it. Um, to move past the NFL, though, and I have not watched since, uh, and I have not missed it, um, but, but to move past the, the, the NFL, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that some corporations who have been doing things right and who have been operating from a sense of equity and inclusivity and diversity for a long time have not had to make statements. Because in, in when they're called to question, their black staff and their black employees and their black executives are the ones who get to speak on behalf of the corporation. And so Black Lives Matter as a projection is really an aspiration. And so those companies and institutions that feel forced to try to get on the front line and say something really quick are those who are virtue posturing and trying to suggest that this perhaps, maybe, is where we're headed because we certainly haven't been there before. Yeah, but see, I don't agree with that, Emmett. I really don't because, see, a lot of those organizations, again, are really using black and brown images really for a photo op moment. I don't think that when you look at the internal structure of these institutions, you really find they may have black employees, but they're not in the upper echelon of the business. I, you know, it's interesting because all of them, no, everybody, every industry has come out. You know, interesting, an industry that has really been doing social justice work, but really lacked black presen- presentation, and it could be where it, where it is in the United States, but Ben and Jerry ice cream. Yeah. Those brothers have always been 
you know, social justice, environmentalist, you know, kind of guys. But again, you know, they, they made a wonderful statement. But, you know, I, I'd rather you make a statement with your white face than, than pimp a black face to say, see, I'm with you. Well, I guess well, what know, I'm speaking... saying is that if you, if, you, if you had it right, you wouldn't have to make a statement. That's my point. If, if, yeah, if but you had I it think... going on. Yeah, but I think everybody, I think folks do at this moment. And, you know, the very interesting thing that I always find, that I will see um, Black Lives Matter placards all over the place, in, even in white parts of Cambridge where they know no, white pe- no black people live. And, and one such that did, that Henry Louis Gates got arrested. Well, uh, we're talking with uh, Emmett Price and uh, Irene Monroe. I wanted to move on to this Renee Graham column. You know, uh, white people like me have gotten our instructions. We're supposed to shut up and listen when we're talking to African Americans, but we are supposed to speak out against racism, against our fellow uh, white friends and neighbors and family members who say these racist things. The basic column is basically, uh, don't be a Karen, be a Joan. And she's talking about, Renee Graham, that is, is talking about Joan Mulholland, who was a white woman who sat down. In the, she was one of the Freedom Riders, and she uh, sat down on a, a Woolworths lunch counter, that famous Woolworths lunch counter in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, took some abuse. What do you think? When she uh, was a kid, by the way, 19 years old. 19, right? yeah. yeah, arrested and spent yeah. two months in prison. Um, what what do you think of uh, the column, uh, Emmett? Okay. Well, you know, I, I I I love Renee. I think you know the. Yeah. I, I don't think I I don't think I've read anything or heard her say anything that has not been you know um, encouraging to me. Matter of fact, if folks did not see uh, Basic Black on Friday, um, I, I thought that she made some great comments as did the other panelists. The Freedom Riders yes. were in, in 1961. Um, and they were um, an integrated group of folks, uh, black and white. Uh, some of the white folks were from the north who were riding down to advocate um, on behalf of equality. And uh, uh, this Joan, um, um, uh, I'm trying to pull her name out, Mulholland. Joan, uh, Trump Power Mulholland, uh, was one in 19, arrested and spent two months uh, in yeah. hardcore penitentiary down in, down in uh, Mississippi. So it shows that things have been done, that people have stepped up into the front lines many times before, uh, and that she's not the first and she's not the only one. And, and I think to the point uh, about the, the shut up and listen statement that you made, Marjorie, you know, one of the things that's, that's really interesting to me is now all of a sudden people want to listen. Matter of fact, people are <laughs> asking, asking me, can they listen to me? And, and I've been trying to hold back myself and I, you know, I may not talk as much as Irene, but I do like to talk. It's like, where have you been? <laughs> I've been talking. Well, listen, I mean, you know. <laughs> on that note, on that note, though, but I, we, <laughs> well, we have to look at it. So why has there been this hesitancy for, white, for what we call our white allies to actually step up? Now, some of it, a good, another example is, you know, Viola uh, Liuzzo who was certainly one of the freedom right, uh, freedom right uh, activists who, who lost her life. But, I, but this is what I've come to understand. And, and so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help Marjorie you a little bit to help you to sort of overcome your internalized whiteness, heal from it. But I think okay. what I've noticed is that, 
there are a couple of a couple of things I've noticed, at least three. There's this issue of white guilt, like having white privilege, but not knowing if you're really willing to give it up or or what to do with it. So um, and so you don't know how to use your privilege in many ways for good. But then there is this kind of frustration that I've seen in white people that they're they're too scared to talk to their white friends about racism and and they and they're afraid to sort of ruin their relationship and then there's the anger that uh, i i've noticed like when trump got married because i have you know a lot of you know uh believe it or not marjorie white friends too and so in talking with them you know i i they would tell me that they're they're like their brothers or somebody in their family voted for trump and i said to them well go talk to them because this is a family affair. This is the very thing I, I need you to do. But, you know, uh, they were angry. And, and part of that angry is that they're also learning how to, to, to deal with their white privilege. So, and they don't want to ruin the relationships with their family. So I think a lot of it is that we really need white advocates to really talk about how white people are confused, conflicted, ashamed, got guilt, overwhelmed, frustrated, and all of those emotions to help move forward. Yeah, well, I think there is a lot of reluctance to confront people. Remember we had all this the, right after Trump won. How are people going to get through Thanksgiving dinner? And yeah. that, was, that was three and a half years ago. And, you know, I think what's happened to a lot of families, they just don't talk about it anymore. They just don't talk about Trump or race or any of these issues because they're trying to get through five minutes of a Thanksgiving dinner without everybody exploding. You know but that's I mean? a privilege, Marjorie, though. But you see, because, I, you know, I think that with black families, at some point, if you if you've traveled a distance or whatever, we always have to talk about race. Don't drive too fast because the cops yep. are out. Don't play. Right, You music. don't have the luxury. Right. Yeah, no, it's yeah. true. Yeah. It, it, it is privilege, but it, but but even acknowledging that it's privilege, you know, I, I think where does it, where does it get you? It doesn't mean people are not willing. I think in in many ways to have those tough conversations with their family. I, I, although we do have some people well, that have broken up, that they were in relationships and they broke up with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or even their spouse um, over differences on the on on race and and other things. Well, here's the, here's the challenge, though, because in this season of protesting, you know, again, one can uh, avail their body, their physical presence to be a part of the protest and be a part of the march. But if they don't open their mouths, then was it, in, you know, what, what was the outcome of that? I mean, so I think yeah. with, with all of these folks out here marching now who, uh, you know, more than black people um, of different ethnicities, different nationalities, different, different you know, um, cultures or whatnot, if these folks who are out here are not opening their mouths, then mm-hmm. they have to deal with their own integrity as to were they just out because it was the thing to do in 2020 during a global pandemic, or are they actually fully invested in anti-racism and moving forward and as a nation? That's right. And do they really want to make change here? So, you know, I've had a lot since, particularly since uh, the killing of George Floyd, what, a lot of what I call white guilt loading. So it's instead of really effectively making a change here, they they reach out to their next you know black friend that they know to say I'm so sorry or I don't have any words. Well, that's and I and I've re, I've received a lot of emails like that, and it's like well that brings me no comfort because 
One of the things that we have to address here and they have to address also are the five pillars of white, what I call the five pillars of white supremacy. Mentally, the whole notion, you know, of, of white superiority, you know, culturally, just the whole notion that you can relinquish really your ethnic, your white ethnicity, you know, and um, to, to say that you're a white person. And, and then just economically, a system that sort of just automatically advances you. And then just spiritually, we ritualize it, you know, with our various dogmas and, and what Trump is doing with his white evangelical. And, and also buying into politically, buying into policies that are against their best interests. So, I mean, there are various ways in which we can, that I feel like even my white friends, you know, who, who sent out like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know, that this is happening, that I thank you, but that's not enough because it maintains the status quo and their white privilege. I'm so glad okay, I didn't send we, you one of those, Irene, I'll tell before, you. Before, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know that's what? Right. So, that's right. Because I think sometimes so, white friends of mine who didn't, like I ran into one and just said, I stand with you, you know, and did stand yeah. with me yesterday in Cambridge Common because there was a rally. You know, so I think that that I do notice a more enlightenment with those who have either really do have black friends or black children or children of color get, you know, understand racism a little better. And, you know, than those who don't like, for instance, now, Irene, 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 I'm interrupting you because we're almost out of time here. And I want to get this last thing in before we uh, before we go. One of the things I thought gave a lot of people a lot of pleasure this weekend was to see when they were the workmen were out in the street there. Uh, painting these huge yellow lines, and then you realize what they were doing was painting this these huge lines right in front of the White House, Black Lives Matter. And then Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., requested this street, I think it's Black Lives Matter Plaza, I believe, right, right in front of the White House. Now, let's start with you, Emmett. Did that give you a little lilt in your step? <laughs> that, that was... That, that, that. That that was beautiful. I mean, I, I I wish that I was on the second or the third floor of sixteen hundred, uh, you know, yeah. a certain house and and looking out on the street to see it, you know, from with the full view. But my favorite photo from that was with the mayor and uh, and John Lewis standing John right Lewis, on the top right. of that, and to see him as he's you know uh, uh, as he's surviving cancer right cancer, now right. to 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 just right. stand stand tall and be bold and be proud in that moment. It was powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, great. It, it, How about you, Irene? You know, it's something that you could never imagine because for, for for a number of years, you know, a younger generation has been saying Black Lives Matter, but actually for 401 years since we, you know, embarked on the, on this shore that we've been saying Black Lives Matter. So what I'm hoping is, is that while we've seen a lot of showcasing of good gesture, I'm hoping that now it will move towards some policy changes. One of which is defunding, not abolishing, defunding the police. By the way, yeah, nine is... to three vote in the Minneapolis City Council last night. Yeah. Veto proof to do exactly that. Huge. Huge. Gentlemen and ladies, it's great to speak to both of you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Yes, and, and remember, this is Happy Pride. It's our 50th anniversary. That is correct. Happy oh, Pride. Oh, gosh, that's right. Happy, yeah, Pride. happy Pride to you. Okay, thank you so much, uh, both of you, both of Irene and Emmett. They've joined us every week. We're so glad they're back. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice, for Detroit's African-American Heritage Trail, and a visiting professor in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological 
seminar are also the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. For more info, go to allrevedup.org. Coming up, across the country, food banks are struggling as the number of households in need of assistance more than doubles. We're going to talk about that up next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marguerite. Across the country, the number of households that can't afford food is doubling because of the coronavirus. To get a sense of what that looks like in Massachusetts, in March and April, the Greater Boston Food Bank gave out more food than any other month in their history. Join us on the line to talk about what it's taking to meet these increasing demands is Catherine D'Amato. Catherine's the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. Catherine, good to speak to you again. Hey, nice to have us uh, back on to give an update. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, Catherine, Jim just mentioned that in March and April you gave out more food than you had in your history. It's now June. So what happened in May? What's happening in June? Uh, May was even greater. It was 9.7 million pounds, and we expect June to be very similar. Can you give us context? 9.7 million pounds is a lot of pounds. But how does it compare, for example, to last May? Sure. So our largest month prior to uh, COVID was around 6.4 million in any given month. Mm. The other way to look at it uh, is about a million pounds of food historically went out a week to 550 agencies across the 190 towns we serve. And now it's about 2 to 2.5 million. So that particular increase, as you can see, is, a, is you know, just doubled down plus each and every week. It has not abated, but been growing. It was 8.1 in March, 9.5 in April, 9.7 in May. And we expect that this is going to continue. We believe these are the new norm levels for the Greater Boston Food Bank. You know, when we spoke to you, I think it's about two months ago, which was sort of early in this uh, first of two nightmares, the coronavirus being the first one, uh, you, uh, I was amazed, actually. I think you told us that you were keeping up with uh, demand. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But if that, that's true, are you still, despite this rapid growth in, in need? We're keeping up with what agencies need to get through every day. So we're meeting about 80% of the agencies. Uh, needs and requests from the Greater Boston Food Bank. Some of them also have local support from their communities, which is incredible. And to be able to rely heavily on us is what's most important for sort of the continuity and the consistency, because we purchase a great deal of food that's available to them. And then also there's USDA products, there are state commodity products. So there's a lot of puts and takes, you know, Jim. And since I last talked to you, you know, there were even more USDA programs, you know, but for your listeners, you know, these new food insecurity data points are staggering. They are unbelievable in my history as an advocate um, in fighting food security in 40 years. You know, Catherine, uh, we throw around terms uh, that I'm not sure we, I'm speaking for Marjorie and me, and obviously not you, know understand exactly. When we say that food insecurity is increasing exponentially, what is food insecurity? What does it mean to someone who's suffering from it? 
Sure. It's having the adequate resources to have three meals a day for you and your family. And in such, prior to COVID, we, when we look at the Eastern Massachusetts, which is what we serve, it was one in 13 individuals was being food insecure. And this comes from USDA data. It's not Catherine thinks this or somebody else thinks this. Uh, this is real data. We are now looking at one in eight that oh is food God. insecure and one in five is a child. And when you look nationally, the numbers are worse than Massachusetts. They're one in six uh, individuals and one in four children. And for our state now, it's one in seven and individuals and one in six. So these are the um, one in six children. These are the historic numbers that we're facing now every day as what we often are now using the new normal, right? The way in which so, we're going to have to work. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Catherine DeMana, president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. So what does that mean? Does that mean that if, you, if you're food insecure uh, and you're a family of, like, say, a mom and, and two kids, that you are having potato chips for dinner or you're going, you're, you're, you're not able to, I mean, how does that transfer into your, what you're doing? Sure. Great question. It means that you might be skipping meals. It means that you may be feeding your children those meals instead of yourself as an adult. Uh, Right now, children are not in school. And so that exacerbates the issue, even though there are terrific sites across the state for emergency meals for zero to 18-year-olds. They're not participating at the same levels. It also means that you may be trading off your food money for other um, expenses, such as rent. And these are not isolated issues, just food alone. And this, as Jim, you well said, these two major issues of a health issue and an issue in our economy just have this ripple effect into individuals to be able to survive. So are you going to now decide to pay your rent or feed your family? So these are, this is real for people. Um, you know, so the uh, extension of not having to pay your rent for 90 days is over. And here people are truly facing these choices, which they always did, but now it's completely exacerbated by these historic numbers. So, Catherine, does that mean that if you are running out of food or nearly running out of food, that the local pantry near you is empty, too, or there's a limit to how many times you can visit? Or what? why are people not able to go get more food when they are running out? Well, they are. What it, what it, they are able to get more food. There are great resources in our state to assist families to feed themselves and their children. What is different about these numbers is you have more people experiencing food insecurity and therefore even more demand on the emergency feeding system. So okay. if you go back to those numbers of a million pounds a week is now two and a half million pounds a week. We're addressing that and we're moving out that volume of food, but it is it exemplifies what is happening in our communities, that the need has risen substantially and more people need assistance. You know, for your listeners, for anyone seeking food, if they go to gbfb.org and click on need food, the resources are there from your local community pantry by your zip code 
the Mass 211 resources, the Project Bread Food Source Hotline, how to apply for food stamps. These are all there for individuals and families that need help right now. You just mentioned food stamps, and I know you reported, Catherine, that the rate of SNAP applications, which, of course, is Supplemental Nutrition, that's the the acronym for it, has gone up 360%. So when you apply for those supplemental food, does it take weeks or does it take days? Or are those people that have just applied sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for their application to be approved, or how does that work? It is a great question. There is a lag in the approval process, and um, there are emergency food stamps, and then, as you probably have read, there's now an, a COVID EBT card, which has been made available to families. Under emergency declarations, things do work at a, a, a bit faster pace, but in we are all experiencing this huge volume happening all at the same time. So it can take um, days, and hopefully it doesn't take weeks uh, for individuals to receive their benefits uh, from uh, through the state of a federal program, which, as you rightfully noted, is now called SNAP. You know, speaking of SNAP, correct me if I'm wrong here too, uh, Catherine D'Amato, if you're a, not a citizen of the United States or you're not eligible to receive SNAP benefits, am I right about that or no? Mm-hmm. You are so, correct. I mean, there have been a lot of changes in the program that, that uh, now limit that significantly. So that person who can't get SNAP benefits, I'm assuming he or she is not precluded from accessing one of these food pantry sites or whatever else it is where food is available that you're describing. Is that is that correct? That Yeah, that is correct. And for so that is where you will see the shift, right, from any time that there is a federal or a change in the federal entitlement programs that impacts a community or individuals that are not uh, legal citizens of our country, they will shift to the private system. If a pantry is handling a federal commodity, there might be a series of questions that ask are asked, but it doesn't preclude that individual from receiving the donated product from GBFB that is not a federal commodity. So there are ways in which to serve and help those families, as well yeah. as the school, some of the school lunch programs as well. You know, almost every time there there is a greater need in this country for people who have historically not accessed government benefits for people who are very low income. You read stories about a family or an individual who feels ashamed or feels stigmatized or doesn't believe in the government helping them, even though the government is helping them in many ways that they don't consider to be traditional government help. Do you encounter or do the do the locals with whom you work encounter any of that resistance or is the need so great that people are blowing through that, if you know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure I fully understand your question. My question is that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people who don't uh, like the notion in the abstract, no, 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 they qualify, but they don't, you read stories about people not saying, I don't want to uh, access uh, welfare benefits as they like to call them or things like that. Is there resistance now when it comes to something as basic as food or if people find out where things are available? Are they running there like we see those endless lines in so many places sure. around the country? 
Sure. I now understand. I think both are true, Jim. I think there are individuals and families that have a great deal of pride, and they may have a support system from their families and friends to not Mm -hmm. need as much of a federal assistance or state assistance that perhaps another family. And then you have the other that exists where they, they don't have that network or they don't have a community around them. I mean, you can have two adults with children. One might be experiencing unemployment and they're okay, but based on what's that unemployment, the breadwinner in the family, and now daycare is gone and there's a bunch of things that just are not happening that they may seek. We are seeing larger numbers of individuals, almost 50% more, at the food pantries that have never gone before. So you are, this is, an, you know, again, a, a reflection of the high unemployment and the business closures. And that there is there's just an, an increased number of people saying, I've never had to do this before. I'm not really sure where to go. Is it okay to come? And the answer is yes. And that's why gbfb.org is a great place for people to see what's happening in their community. And this is the time we can be of great assistance, and we're here to help, as are all our colleagues across the network in eastern Massachusetts. So, Kevin D'Amato, uh, for people who are listening to you right now who still have their jobs, they're in a, are in a better financial position, uh, what can they do to help this situation? Send money or do send food, or what should they do? Sure, money. I mean, the, you know, the key here is two, two things we need. You know, we will need it, ongoing resources to address this ongoing demand. And the second is volunteering, uh, whether you do that in your local community uh, or whether you come to Greater Boston Food Bank. And we can connect you both if you want to give money locally and or to GBFB or volunteer locally or to GBFB. And in such, these agencies need help. Everybody needs some help. And it does matter, Marjorie, if it's $5 or $10. Um, all of it matters. And give what you can commensurate with your situation. I do think what I know what we're hearing from people in testimonies is people know it, it was them, it could be them, it is now them, and that there is, a, there is just this large sensitivity and awareness that food insecurity while it was always there, is now so much more pronounced in our ability to get this economy back and running and to keep people safe in an environment such as a pandemic. So, voice of Catherine D'Amato, Greater Boston Food Bank. I want to ask you about both things. You mentioned volunteers and money, Catherine. Volunteers, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that social distancing is as important to you as it is to everybody else. And I know how dependent uh, you are on volunteers. How, how are you reconciling the need to comply with public health concerns at the same time that the demand is ex- exploding? How are you dealing with that? Sure. There are changes. You know, like all of us, we're adapting and adjusting to this new normal of what is required relative to social distancing. And in such, so are the programs, these emergency feeding programs in their communities. So you'll see much more um, programmatic responses such as drive-throughs where you can Mm. open a trunk and put prepackaged 
boxes, you will see what we call grab and goes, you know, the, the, you know, the great table distance now between us of persons on one side, you'll see all of our volunteers have masks and gloves mm -hmm. and go through a training and an awareness. And this is true at the pantry level as well. So we follow all of the CDC requirements and the state requirements and the city's requirements because we're located in Boston. So everything is being deployed. And I'm pleased to say our volunteers have been um, responsive and resilient, as has Team GBFB and the network that we serve. You know, we, we carry uh, the governor's press conferences on coronavirus live during our show, if they obviously if they happen between 11 and 2. And it, it wasn't so long ago, a week or so ago, I can't remember if it was him or Mayor Lou Sutters, who's head of Health and Human Services, talked about, I think it was, is it $56 million that the state was dedicating to food insecurity issues, whatever the amount is, uh, uh, what exactly is this state money going towards? Who's benefiting sure. from it and how? Sure, and you're correct. It is $56 million to combat food insecurity. Uh, it's never happened before. Uh, you know, neither has this particular situation we all find ourselves in. So we're first incredibly grateful to the Baker administration for prioritizing food insecurity. Uh, the dollars will go to a lot of various um, aspects. Um, they're purchasing food. They're supporting the food banks. They're supporting the emergency food network. You know, 36 million of that will go through a grant application to support a variety of needs across the industry, you know, our state from uh, pantries to school meals to fishing agriculture retail manufacturing it's it's a boost of dollars to try to help those industries that have been deeply hurt as well as the individuals um, you know there's five million for the healthy incentives program and it's a it's a pretty robust and comprehensive um, appropriation to help Massachusetts move back towards those food secure numbers, like those one in 13 numbers versus one in eight. And this kind of investment will help all of us, you know, row together. I mean, this is not a, a singular isolated solution as we've all seen. It takes all of us doing the best we can to make, you know, our communities better and to bring back um, some of those assurances of uh, healthy communities, healthier individuals, and uh, more food-secure individuals and families in our state. You know, Catherine DeMondo, you mentioned earlier if people want to help, they can go to greaterbostonfoodbank.org, which is actually GBFB, uh, standing for greaterbostonfoodbank.org. But that's not, you're just not, to be clear, you're, you're just not serving Boston, right? Correct. The Greater Boston Food Bank serves nine counties in eastern Mass yep. and 190 cities and towns. Boston is one. Okay. Uh, while the largest, there are another 189, and okay. all cities and towns, all 351 in our state are served by their local food bank. We're fortunate to have four food banks in the state that serve all the 351 cities and towns. Okay, so Catherine, people don't thanks for your work. get out there. And thanks Thank for your you very time. Much, really Catherine. appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we appreciate that you keep it going. You guys stay safe. Uh, you too. Absolutely, you too. Catherine D'Amato is the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. To help them out, go to gbfb.org. Catherine, thank you. thanks again for joining us. Up next...
We're asking you about back to normal peer pressure. Are you ready to be a social butterfly or would you feel safer cocooning a little while longer? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And after months of living in near isolation, are you experiencing pandemic peer pressure? You know, with the state opening up, today is phase two, day one. Are you ready to reboot your social life? Do you still worry about physical distancing? Are you, are you someone whose idea of safe differs from that of your friends and family? And if so... This is the key question. Is it causing a rift? The number is 877-301-8970. Do you feel like a pandemic pariah for hosing, let's say, an outdoor cocktail party? Have you been shunned for liberally interpreting public health guidelines? Or are you being coerced into letting your guard, if not your face mask, down? 877-301-8970. I think this is a total side effect of the phase one initiation today. I know that Governor Baker, if he was asked the question, would say, you never let your guard down. The same rules apply. We're just beginning to reopen the economy. But don't, don't you think the subliminal impact when people hear people can be eating outside today, they're going uh, camps, day camps are open, daycare open, even though in a limited kind of way, that it creates the mindset that if you are one of those people who still doesn't want to do like a social interaction thing, you are like a pandemic pariah. Don't you think the pressure is intense? Well, I don't know if the pressure is intense, but visiting somebody else's house Friday night for drinks outside, I felt you did? like it was a breakout. Yes, I you felt did? like it was like, free at last, free at you last. You didn't tell me yes, this. I, and were you f- well, I'm sorry. I'm well, I know you don't have to report in. I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean it quite that way. <laughs> You didn't need my approval before you went. No, so were there great. preconditions? It was great. Why am I even laying this uh, out? You should be laying this well, out. We were, were there we preconditions? Were How many people? What's the deal? It was just it was just four of us, and we were outside, and it yeah. was very very nice. But you, know, you read this. Story wait 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 wait. That's not adequate. Did you stand a certain number of feet apart? Did you bring your own glass? I'm serious. How'd you deal? No, with this? I did not. We did not bring our own glasses and our own silverware and our own china, as recommended in this story. We did not have on gloves, and the hostess did not sanitize the bathroom constantly every time somebody stood up. And how far away did you stand from the people who you don't live with? How many people, how far away did you stand from them? I would say say close to six feet. In other words, not. You're you're not even looking at me on Zoom because you're too embarrassed. You broke all... I mean, we watch each other on Zoom these days, and when a Marjorie can't make eye contact, that means she's making something up. So obviously, it was like a regular old social gathering. Well, it wasn't a regular old social gathering. It was outside with, with, with a lot I of wind. I am stunned. I am really I'm, well, I'm I mean, stunned. I, I think that we learned that we can go outside. You know what else I think has made a big impact? What's that? It, 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 watching tens of thousands of people protesting. I, I said that I the other day. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, by the way, I assume all four of you were tested immediately after the cocktail party. No, we were not. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing. I'm just so amused that Marjorie did this. I have no idea. Are you in a cocoon mode, Jim? I actually had a Zoom cocktail with someone from Cleveland on Friday night, and that was as close (laughs) as I wanted to get to them. And I I hung up in the middle of the cocktails because I was so appalled. But no, by the way, I want to do. I'll be serious. I want to do exactly what I love. Hot weather, as you know, the hotter the better. I I love summer nights. I love a drink on a summer night, not as much as you do, but I do Mm -hmm. love a drink on a summer night. But I'm a little 
nervous about it, and I'm a little nervous about it. And so I want to know how people are dealing with this. If you're friends, or if, let's assume, you, well, this is a perfect example. Marjorie's sort of in one corner on this corner is five poor choice of words. I'm in another. How does the twain ever meet? How do you maneuver that middle ground? If your good friend says, come over for drinks, and you really want to say, I'm not totally comfortable with that. Did you read the I great said, line? Here's a story. Kidding? Before you go I'm ahead. I'm there. I'll be over I know. Well, minutes. obviously, a free drink, you'll be there. I know that. <laughs> There's a great this story by Kara Baskin in the, uh, in the Boston Globe about this topic. They have this woman, her name is Janet Parnes, a social, yep. con- do you believe this? A social conversation etiquette consultant. That's what I'd like to be. <laughs> she says she favors the, quote, bad news sandwich. And what it means is you have two positive comments, bookending and negative ones. So here's this. That suspicious food item looks so tempting. You don't say suspicious food item. I'm sorry. That looks so tempting. That's the positive. However, the virus is still out there. Some being particularly cautious. That's the negative in the middle. Another time, I'd love it. That's the positive. That's the bad news sandwich. And I, I'm not. I, that's the best I've heard. But I think it, it's hard to work for people who are ready to re-enter society, even if the public health uh, regulations shouldn't allow it. Well, and apparently in another story uh, that I read, you're not only supposed to bring your own food, silverware, plates, drinks, liquor. Yeah, you are. You're supposed to bring your own condiments as well. So I guess you have to come with the salt and the pepper and the ketchup and the mustard and everything else, at which point I would say you'd be better off just to stay home if you have to go through all that trouble. But that is what they're recommending. You're supposed to have it, bring everything of your own. And needless to say, there is no chipping and dipping. That's out. Forget so did someone hand you over. your drink at this cocktail party? Yep. And did that cause you any concern? Nope. Okay. Okay. I, I'm I'm shocked. Josh, nope. Josh and Peabody, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Yes. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. That is correct. Uh, hi. Yes. Uh, hi. First time I've gotten through. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been uh, a listener since I returned here to retire. Oh. I returned home. Great. Good. Um, Anyway, I was, I and a friend uh, had a concert scheduled on April 1st, mm-hmm. uh, which has been rescheduled for August 28th. Uh, I'm 72. Uh, I have some respiratory issues, and this is at a venue, a type of venue that I have never been. It is at a club. Usually I go into a theater, I sit down. It's, you know, people may stand at their seats, but this is where people tend to gather in front of the stage. I got it. Front to back, shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, right. So how'd you and deal with I it? I am concerned. Uh, I have it. Well, I I passed up uh, my chance to uh, refund my tickets, so I am still scheduled to go. I'm not worried about that because I bought them last year. But uh, I, I'm worried. I am, I am just plain worried. Uh, I want to see this uh, uh, band. Uh, my friend also wants to see this band very much, and uh, I am still torn. I just don't know. Yeah. How about what honesty, well, Josh? Jo- I, I how about honesty is a, a thing. Just saying, I'm torn. I'm nervous. I'm worried about my health. I'd love to do this, but I right now is not the time. How about that? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of hoping that uh, Mayor Walsh will say that you know August September is too early to open up such a venue. Yeah. And, and, you want to be rescued by one of the... I hear you. Josh, thank you for your first call. We wish you luck. That's exactly the kind of dilemma we're talking about, Marjorie. 
Well, I think that you, honesty is is fine. If you if you feel like as as Josh did that you don't you don't feel comfortable, then then don't go. I mean, a lot of people are not going to go to restaurants. I personally, I mean, I I, I don't want to get coronavirus, obviously, but um, you know, I'm I'm kind of ready to break out, Jim. I okay, so if, if honesty is the best policy, as you just told that mm-hmm. caller, why didn't you tell me you were going out for drinks Friday night? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, really, because you knew that I would cross-examine you. Is that not why you didn't tell me? Come on. Everybody knows that. Well, I went to a protest. I told you that. That was I know you worse. Did. I know. Right? Well, I don't know if it's worse, but it, uh, it's but that's for a good cause. I don't know what the cause was at a cocktail party on somebody's deck. What's the cause you know, for that? You know, Jim, your sanity. That's, that's what it is. Your Maybe. Sanity. Well, that's, that's actually, that's decent. Where do you want to go? Kiara uh, from Bedford. Hi, Kiara. Hey there. Hey. Hi, Marjorie and Jim. Hi. I just want to say thank you so much. I love your show, by the Thanks. way. Thanks. Thanks. I love the radio thank you. anyway. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. You. You're so welcome. Anyway, I think, you know, it is, it's a balance. You know what I mean? It's like, is this going to be, you know, is this one, it, it's like we have, we are going through such difficult, difficult times right now, and, um... You know, sometimes, you know, the weather is so beautiful. And, like, um, I really like to, I love to be by water. And I love to be with friends and everything. And certainly after my shifts, when I have them, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I need a breath of fresh air. And I just want to be with some, in company of some, you know, really, Healthfulness and Kiara, if if Marjorie but, had invited you to the cocktail party on Friday night, would you have gone? Absolutely, I would have invited you, Kiara. I think I probably would have. Said. I'm sure you would have. Absolutely. I think. By the way, she is. Your words. Thank you for your call. She is saying exactly what I think the average feeling of most people. They want to be outside. Being by the water is great. Having a drink at the end of your shift or whatever. I mean, she's every woman. Do you not think, or every man? I think too. No. Yeah, I, I think so. And you think I, I think you feel much differently about being outside than you do about being inside, right? People don't want to be inside, but outside is a different kind of thing. So let me, uh, before we go to the next call, had there mm-hmm. not been these huge and wonderful demonstrations and had phase two not started today, would you have done that cocktail party on Friday night? You wouldn't, right? It's environmental stuff that's going on that sort of subliminally says to you, it's okay even if you're hesitant on the merits. Is that not a fair statement? I think the opening up and the protests, yeah, have impacted I think how, so too. affected how I feel. How you feel. live. Let's put it I that agree. Way. Yeah. Let's go to uh, Lucy on the South Shore. Hi, Lucy. Hey, Lucy. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to let you know, so I had a birthday party for my daughter on Sunday, yesterday. Yeah. I had sent out the invites to the parents, and before I sent out the invites, I told the parents this is going to be outside. I sewed every mask for the children. Um, these are 12-year-old girls. Sewed them up, had everything ready to go. Husband and I uh, marked on our front lawn big, huge circles. We made sure they were a minimum of eight feet apart. Everything was good. And then the girls all started coming over, and they were great. Um, they all stayed, you know, had their distance. Within half an hour, they were playing games, all distance games. Within half an hour, um, these uh, I had gotten them these, um, like, sprays, water sprays that they could do games mm-hmm. with balloons up in the air, and it wouldn't fall. That turned into let's spray each other. 
let's soak each other, let's run around <laughs> screaming, and then uh, masks <laughs> came off, husband oh, puts on the... Uh, uh, the uh, s'mores, the girls gathered all around the s'mores. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I will say it was amazing. The kids had such a good time. Um, my daughter kept saying, we didn't touch each other, Mom. We were through, it was, Everything was fine. But the hard part was that um, the parents were all fine with it. One parent, I felt horrible. The mom was really upset when she came to the party to pick up her daughter and saw that all the girls were around the, the um, fire pit doing s'mores. I felt horrible because the mom was really, she was like, I am not okay with that. I'm not at that point oh, God. yet. Um, so in, I felt awful for the child, too, because then the mom left with the child and all the other girls. It, it, it was Well, it, especially totally after you and your husband did all this planning to have it oh, right. I felt awful. I'm sure you did. I can hear it in your voice. So, <laughs> Lucy, do you want us to find, Lucy, Lucy. Do you want us to try to find you a lawyer to defend yourself when the other parents <laughs> sues you or not? <laughs> I'm sorry. I think we're good. all the other parents were perfectly fine because they, they hung out on my deck while the girls were having a crazy time. Um, but the whole point is we have to be sensitive to everybody. Some families are yeah. more sensitive to it where others – and it was all outside. None of the girls went inside. Um, and I was very nervous about it, to tell you the truth. But then, you know, watching these girls, they were desperate to see each other. They were desperate to talk. And it was fun. But still, can I tell you, am I nervous? Yeah, I was. And then I was very, I felt so horrible for this mom. I felt really bad. But um, but it's like, at what point do we say, you know, uh, you know, do we not do it? Do we do it? You know, well, you, but, you, but nice you know, Lucy, day. you took every precaution you can. I mean, I'm a pretty careful guy when it comes to COVID-19 stuff. But you wanted to do it for your kid. You, you ensured that virtually every precaution could be taken in advance. And it imploded a little bit. I mean, I don't know what to say except it's, I mean, would you tell Lucy not to have done this in retrospect? This well-planned-out well, thing for her. I mean, I can't. I do think, you know, we were talking about this earlier in terms of daycares reopening and daycares reopening. Lucy, I think it's really hard with kids because they're not going to follow the orders. I mean, they're just not Even as nervous at 12. as parents. So I think, yeah, I think, I think those things are very tough with kids. I mean, so many people had graduations from high school this weekend, and they were all so carefully orchestrated where everybody had to get six feet apart. But, of course, you had the parents there to be supervising. I don't think teenagers are necessarily going to follow the orders either because that's not what kids do, right? Lucy, I, 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 we both feel bad for you, but I, I think you sound like a really responsible parent. You did the right thing. So hope for the best and hope the other parent gets over it as best they can. Now, Marjorie, you just texted me and asked me if the buzzsaw that uh, people are hearing yeah is coming from my end of the show. And the answer is yes. I believe the next-door neighbors are sawing off my deck as we speak, <laughs> I believe. That's what it sounds like, Jim. I think I just there want to are make sure. two of the posts gone, and there are two more yep. posts to go. And my apologies, but the window's open, and I am home. place the blame no, squarely on you, Jim. Okay, you did I am it. innocent. This is oh, just because I accused her of going to a cocktail party without telling me. But it's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's... If Lucy can have the thing for her kids, you can do the cocktail party on It was a great time, Friday Jim. I, I, I enjoyed every second. What hot okay. thing are you going through tonight? Oh, we don't have time for this now. <laughs> nothing, 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 nothing tonight. Okay, thank you very much for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to be joined by former Governor Deval Patrick. Can't wait to talk oh, good. to him. Oh, good. I can't wait to talk to Boston him. Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell. Ditto. 
and triple ditto public intellectual Ryan Landry. I want to thank our crew. Yeah, I know. It's going to be great. Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aiden Conley. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. Our off-site engineers are Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. What's on TV, Jim Browdy? Well, can you talk for about 10 more seconds while I figure out what is on TV tonight? If you don't... Oh, okay. Latasha Brown, who's with me a lot of times when she was at the Kennedy School, she's the head of something called Black Voters Matter. She's going to talk about the protests and what the impact is on what she does a lot of work on. Harvard School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Jha, who probably has done more about testing than anybody in America. We're going to talk about the reopening and the demonstrations and the great Howard Bryant from ESPN and NPR and all those things on the NFL, specifically Roger Goodell's response to uh, Black Lives Matter and what may have been missing, in fact, was missing from his highly acclaimed uh, video. So that's all tonight at 7. Terrific. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great afternoon. See you. Bye.